0: guests that you'll find anywhere on internet radio and you
1: can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675
2: so sit back relax and remember southern
1: sense is common sense
3: Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Ah, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio channel, along with my debonair, intellectual, and oh-so-handsome co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, don't let your wife hear me say that to you.
4: <laughs> How are you today?
5: <laughs> I, hey, she, she's out of town anyway.
4: <laughs> Carolyn, be a Copa, be a Copa.
3: I'll watch over him.
5: And she's up in Philly for oh, a, a visit for about a week. So I'll let her know anyway.
2: <laughs> but I'm doing fine. I'm well, doing
5: fine. I'm,
3: I'm ready to for
5: uh, spring. Uh, if anyone's
3: trying to so am i so am i uh i'm trying to get our page up on facebook i'm ha- i've been having problems with youtube uh so um that, hopefully i got the page up here on facebook just bear with me for a second as i look for it come on guys and oh man well i know it's up here somewhere anyway i'll try to get it up possibly this is it there we go there we go we are live on facebook
6: mm. anyway
3: we got a lot to talk about a lot to do We've got three fantastic guests. Uh, there's one gentleman I've been trying to get onto the show for years. I've been a huge fan of his when he was up on PJNet. And now he's got his own website. He's doing movies. He's all over the place. And a friend of ours, a friend of the show, uh, J.P. Sloan, sent a message to him saying, hey, you've got to talk to this girl. And he reached out to me, and we're going to have Alfonso, Rachel on the show, formerly of PJ Net, now he's got his own website, Brown Serpent Media. So we'll have him for a few minutes. But we also have Dr. Wilfred Riley, who's got a great book out called Hate Crime Hoax. Um matter of fact, with Jesse Smollett mess going on, he is the perfect guest to have on. Matter of fact, he's been up on Fox News a couple of times. So this time I stole a guest from Fox News, and Fox News did not steal a guest from me. There's another great book that <laughs> just came out. It's called Desert Fox about Rommel. And believe it or not, when I was reading it uh, at the doctor's office and in the hospital over the last couple of days, people kept on asking me, why am I reading this book about World War II? And when I started to tell them the story about uh, Field Marshal Rommel, they were surprised, things they didn't know. So we're going to have two great guests, actually three great guests, but we're a little tight for time at the front of the show, so I'm going to say up ahead, Thank you for everyone that's showing up in the chat room, also over on Facebook. I haven't figured out what is wrong with YouTube yet. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks I'll get that up and running. When all of those are going to show up in their studios, please press 1, and we know that you want to be on live with us. The reason why I'm rushing is I put together the dedication for a fallen hero. And it happens to be a Medal of Honor awardee who was awarded by President Trump just this past week. And I put together the of Trump winning the award and then of the family speaking afterwards. So the audio isn't all that great because I just rushed it through last night. Um, so today's dedication is going to go out to Army Staff Sergeant Travis Akins. He is a Medal of Honor awardee. He was killed in action on June 1st of 2017 while serving in Iraq. And this is in President Trump's own words and in the words of his family. As I cue this up, please bear with me. As I said, the audio is not all that great.
7: Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States.
8: Very much please. Thank you. And thank you. Please sit down, please. Thank you, Chaplain Soldier. Vice President Pence. Thank you, Mike members of Congress, and distinguished military leaders. We're here today to award America's highest honor to a fallen hero who made the supreme sacrifice for our nation, Staff Sergeant Travis Atkins. Please join me in welcoming the entire Atkins family to the White House. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Joining us to accept the Congressional Medal of Honor on behalf of Travis is his son, Trevor. Thank you very much, Trevor. We're also grateful to be joined by Travis's parents, his mother Elaine, as well as his father Jack, who served as an Army paratrooper in the Vietnam War. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Also here with us is Travis's sister, Jennifer, along with his uncle, Sumner, and cousin Douglas. Both are military veterans of great distinction, I might add. Thank you very much.
6: Thank you. Thank you very much.
8: (laughs) To the entire Atkins family, we can never measure the true depth of our gratitude or the full magnitude of your loss but we can pay everlasting tribute to Staff Sergeant Travis Atkins, his truly immortal act of valor was indeed. Thank you. Today the name of Staff Sergeant Travis Atkins will be etched alongside of the names of America's bravest warriors and written forever into America's heart. Travis grew up on a farm in Bozeman, Montana. He was also and always most at home in the middle of the wilderness. He loved the wilderness. He loved to camp and to fish and to hunt, and he loved to race that snowmobile, as you know, right? After Travis graduated high school, he worked as a painter and mechanic before he joined the Army at the age of 24. In March of 2001, his parents went to his basic training graduation ceremony at Fort Benning, Georgia. When they reunited with their son, he told them, this basic training was the best time I've ever had in my life. In other words, he loved it. Travis quickly excelled in the Army. He was offered a number of different assignments, but always he chose the infantry. He loved the infantry. That's where he wanted to be, defending freedom, on the frontiers with his fellow foot soldiers, and they were all his great friends. In 2003, Travis served on his first deployment in Iraq with the historic 101st Airborne Division, and participated in Operation Iraqi Freedom. After he completed the harrowing deployment, Travis returned to civilian life, but not for long. The fact is, he was bored. You know that, he was very bored. He wanted back in. As his mother Elaine has said, Travis loved the Army, and he loved everything about being with the troops. He just loved it. In 2005, he reenlisted and joined the legendary 10th Mountain Division based at Fort Drum, New York, where he was honored to visit last year. In August of 2006, Travis left his second deployment to Iraq. He was stationed in a hotbed of terror and terrorist activity known as the Triangle of Death. Not a good place. On the morning of June 1st, 2007, in a town outside of Baghdad, Travis and his three-man squad received a report that several suspected terrorists were walking toward an intersection nearby. Nothing good was going to happen. They all knew it. Travis directed his squad immediately to the location. When they arrived, he got out of the Humvee and walked toward the two suspicious men, and he knew right from the beginning. As Travis began to search one of the insurgents, the man resisted and became totally violent. Travis engaged him in hand-to-hand combat. As Travis wrestled to get the enemy's hands behind his back, the man began to reach for something, and Travis knew what it was. He realized the man was wearing a suicide vest. Just as the terrorist was about to set off the deadly explosives, Travis wrapped his arms and his entire body around him and threw him to the ground away from his troops who were right next to him. He put himself on the top of the enemy and he shielded his men from certain death. The terrorist detonated his suicide vest and Travis was instantly killed. In his final moments on Earth, Travis did not run. He didn't know what it was to run. He did not hesitate. He rose to the highest calling. He laid down his life to save the lives of his fellow warriors. In so doing, he embodied the meaning of the motto of the 10th Mountain Division, He climbed to glory. Now Travis is looking down from above on all of us, on all of his fellow warriors, on his great family, wrapped in glory, the loving glory of Almighty God. We are grateful to be joined by the three squad members that Travis saved, Private First Class, Michael Kistel, Michael. Where are you, Michael? Thank you. Please stand. stand. Thank you.
2: <laughs> thank
8: you. Specialist Travis. Robert Shaw. Travis, where are you? Travis? Thank you. Thank you, Travis. And specialist Sand AO.. Thank you very much, Thank you. Thank you. It. Today we are privileged also to be joined by more than 50 soldiers from the 10th Mountain Division, including those who served alongside Travis. Knew he was brave from day one. They really loved him. They wanted to be here. Would you please stand? Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Your lives of service, honor to our country, to Army values, and your fallen brothers-in-arms like Staff Sergeant Travis Atkins, and he's looking down. He loves you all. Just a few days before that June morning, when Travis left on his last mission, he called his son, Trevor, to wish him a very, very special 11th birthday. Trevor didn't know that he would speak to his dad for the last time. But in the 12 years since, he's always known that his father gave his life for our nation and for our freedom. He knew that his father was a hero right from the beginning, long before today. Trevor has said that he wants our nation to remember his dad as the best father and best soldier that anyone would ask for. Trevor, that is exactly how well your dad be remembered. He will be remembered truly as the best father, and he will be remembered as the best soldier. You can't get better than the Congressional Medal of Honor. You just can't. So thank you very much. And I'd like you to come on up. Please come up. Please come up. Father's courage and sacrifice will live for all time. And every time we see our stars and stripes waving in the sky, we will thank our great Travis. And we will think of every American hero who gave their last breath to defend our liberty and our homeland and our people and our great American flag. Now I'd like to ask the military aide to read the citation. And I would also like, perhaps, in honor of your father, perhaps you could say just a few words. Would you like that? Please.
9: Um, thank you, everyone, for being here. First off, um, it's an absolute honor to have every single one of you here. It's uh, something that uh, I can't really uh, put into words. It's something that's surreal, and I still I still haven't fully accepted it yet. So, um, just all over appreciation for his men, everything you have said to me over the last few days has meant the world to me, and it changes my life every, every day. It, it, that's The medal is something that I take very, a lot of pride in, but it's it's the words that are the real prize and what really means the most to me. And uh, when it comes to my dad, he always had the funniest stories about you guys and you guys throughout. I. I was a young kid, but he let me know. <laughs> and uh, no, I just I feel so close with you and to him. Every every story I get to hear, and I'm just I'm glad that you got to enjoy his love and his his energy. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you.
10: The President of the United States has awarded, in the name of Congress, the Medal of Honor posthumously to Staff Sergeant Travis W. Atkins, United States Army. Staff Sergeant Atkins distinguished himself by conspicuous acts of gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty on 1 June 2007 while serving as a squad leader with Delta Company, 2nd Battalion, 14th Infantry Regiment, 2nd Brigade Combat Team, 10th Mountain Division in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. While manning a static observation post in the town of Abu Samak, Iraq, Staff Sergeant Atkins was notified that four suspicious individuals walking in two pairs were crossing an intersection not far from his position. Staff Sergeant Atkins immediately moved his squad to interdict them. One of the individuals began behaving erratically, prompting Staff Sergeant Atkins to disembark from his patrol vehicle and approach to conduct a search. Both individuals responded belligerently towards Staff Sergeant Atkins who then engaged the individual he had intended to search in hand-to-hand combat. When he noticed the insurgent was reaching for something under his clothes, Staff Sergeant Atkins immediately wrapped him in a bear hug and threw him to the ground away from his fellow soldiers. Maintaining his hold on the insurgent, he pinned him to the ground, further sheltering his patrol. The insurgent then detonated a bomb strapped to his body, killing Staff Sergeant Atkins. In this critical and selfless act of valor, Staff Sergeant Atkins acted with complete disregard for his own safety, saving the lives of the three soldiers who were with him and gallantly giving his life for his country. Staff Sergeant Atkins' undaunted courage, warrior spirit, and steadfast devotion to duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit upon himself, the 2nd Brigade Combat Team, and the United States Army.
2: Because. Oh.
3: Today's dedication goes out to Army Staff Sergeant Travis Atkins, Medal of Honor awardee killed on june first, two thousand and seven while serving in Iraq. It also goes out to all the brave men and women who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its great future. We also dedicate it to the brave men and women that serve as first responders, did they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services? May God bless each and every one. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm back. Your host is with the most is the radio chick alone. With my co-host is Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, in about a minute or two, we need you to call our guest in, Dr. Wilford Riley, who's written the book, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling Fake Race War. Um, in the interim, I see that we have in the studio Cool Mike, and Cool Mike was at the Michigan Rally yesterday. Uh, so, uh, Cool Mike, we actually have a picture of you to put up on um, the video, which I am pushing live now. So if you turn into Facebook, Cool Mike, you've got a picture of you up there wearing <laughs> a Trump T-shirt, pissing on CNN. Love it, Mike. I want, I want one. I want one. Size medium, Mike. <laughs> Send it to me.
5: All right, Mike. <laughs>
3: oh man. No, he was he was tech studio. He was up at the rally and he may end up being a chair on a, a Trump uh, election committee. Uh Curtis cannot get into the chat room for some reason. I'm gonna have to work with him. Uh Curtis over maybe the weekend I'll give you a call or you call me, we'll open up the studio and see how we can get you back into the chat. There's gotta be something that we can do to get you back in there.
5: But, uh, yeah, I'm sure it's just said, something technical uh, That we in a few minutes, the... Yeah Oh
3: yeah, yeah our, that, our that, guest that will be possible.
2: calling
3: in He will oh, be calling in foot. about
4: another All right,
5: minute great. Oh yeah and Yeah, um, I okay, guess you great. heard what Trump said uh, recently And that was that By next week If uh, Mexico Doesn't stop the flow of illegals He was going to close the border I hope that he does I really
3: do Well I I hope so I hope so too As a matter of fact I reached out to a gentleman Who has a magazine called Border Patrol um, And it's an excellent magazine That deals with these immigration issues He's going to be coming on the show Uh, I have to give him a call And schedule that But believe it or not I got a phone call today Out of the blue And it was someone That had been in Walk Meadows A congressional office And was asking, you know, who was when that was like-minded that could help get the message across, the conservative message. And the words out of his mouth was, oh, you've got to talk to Annie Ubellis of Southern Sense. So I'm going to be having his staff calling me the next couple of days, and we may get Mark Meadows onto the show also. I mean – Man, with the election season coming up, people are coming out of the woodwork that want to get the word across, and that's good for us. It's good for the nation. It's good for the listeners, and it's good for spreading the conservative message. You know, guys, I mean, I've got my uh, Make America Great hat, but uh, I don't want to wear it outside because I'm afraid it's going to get stolen. But maybe I should. Take it down off that shelf. Be proud to walk around outside with it. But I think what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get a backup one. So in case they still want I've got to go back.
5: <laughs> Well I've heard of people uh, just, saying they they would Kellis put F- they would put they would put more Trump uh, um, support Trump things on their cars but they're afraid that their cars will be vandalized. And that, that's sad for that to well, to happen here in the United States. That is sad.
3: States. But then again but then again that's what insurance is for, right? Um, But Kelly asked a question in the chat room, does Patriot Supply ship to Canada? I do believe they do. Everything's made in America, and believe it or not, I checked it out because there's Wise Food, there's a couple of others. Uh, The reason why I went with Patriot Supply is because, number one, it's all 100% made in America. Number two, it's lower in sodium and more in natural foods. Uh, It's a healthier variety, and that's why I chose Patriot Supply because I've got to watch my sodium. I don't know about anyone else out there but uh yeah i do believe they do ship so if you've got a code uh go ahead and order it uh make sure you go through my website the southern dash sense website so that way i get credit for you know your purchase so thank you cal i appreciate that and anyone else you know that wants you know survival food believe it or not you can, this lasts up to 20 years on your shelf uh, i've got I, I wow. think I've think got about three months supply. but um I, I really didn't need the last two hurricanes because I had enough supplies of my own canned goods uh, in on my pantry shelves and in the refrigerator and freezer. So we didn't even have to touch the survival food. So I've got that for the next uh, 19 years and counting. So you're welcome, Cam. Um, Our guests should be calling in very shortly. Uh, if anyone wants to know, I have not been on social networks in the last several days Uh, On Monday, I went in for a routine blood test. Actually, I had gone in on Friday um, because I'm on blood thinners. And if you're on blood thinners, you have to get tested every so often. So I went in on Thursday. I got poked and stuck and bruised. And um, the test results came back, and they couldn't read them. So they thought there was something wrong with the test itself. So they said, you know, the doctor calls me at home over the weekend. You know, thank God I've got a great doctor I've known for 19 years he goes, Annie, you got to come back in Monday. We've got to rerun the test. I walked in on Monday, but by Monday I was walking with the cane. I was I was in a lot of pain for some reason. I a problem, and I thought it was orthopedic. I thought I had a problem with my hip and something was going on with my leg because everyone knows I've had multiple orthopedic surgeries. So I walk in with the cane. He does the blood test again, and they do some other tests, and he goes, listen, you know, I'm sending you to the ER. Walk in for a blood test. Next thing I know, my husband's driving me to the ER. Get to the ER. I got to that point where I couldn't even use a cane. He had to help me out of the car into a wheelchair. I get into the ER. I register. Within minutes, they've got me in the back. Within that short time frame, I couldn't even stand. They had to take three nurses. And I'm not a big person. Curtis, you know that. I'm not a a huge person. And they had to lift me out of the wheelchair and put me on the gurney. Needless to say, after three days in the hospital, I'm walking on my own. <laughs> my pain is almost all gone, and I'm doing fine. And I've got great doctors working for me. So those that were sending me prayers and well wishes, I want to thank you. Prayers do have a power, and you helped me. I swear I didn't know if I was going to walk again a couple of days ago, and today I'm up and almost pain-free. We got a guest in on the line. That said, now I was start on a morbid note. <laughs> I want to welcome to the show, Doctor Wilfred Riley. Good afternoon, Doctor Riley. How are you today?
2: Hey, good afternoon. I'm good. How are you?
3: I'm doing a lot better. A lot better. I wasn't sure if I was going to be here today, but I'm here. <laughs> I didn't want to see myself postpone your show one more time.
11: <laughs> yeah, um, I heard kind of a medical intro know, uh, as I came on. Is everything okay?
3: Yeah, it's just that I was on blood thinners, and uh, it was, I guess, a little too strong. And fortunately, I've got a fantastic doctor. I belong to one of those concierge services. You have to pay through the nose, but for me, it was mm-hmm. worth it considering that I came close. If I had one bad cut or one fall, he said I could have gone critical. That's how bad you know, the blood clotting factor became. So uh, thankfully, I'm fine. Blood cladding faster is back, almost where it should be, so I'm not worried about cuts or falling anymore, but I'm back, I'm stronger, I'm better than ever, and I really want to talk about your book, The Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. What timing on the book release? Oh my goodness, and it's getting weirder and weirder by the day.
11: Yeah, I mean, the uh, Jussie Smollett thing, obviously, was the kind of either good luck or bad luck, depending on how ethically you look at that, that you just couldn't plan for. So the book was released by Regnery, with Regnery Publications, on February 26th. And exactly four days before that happened, the Jussie Smollett case, which literally occurred in my old neighborhood of my old city, uh, Streeterville in Chicago, was revealed to have been a hoax. So, a uh, kind of blizzard of media coverage came out of that, with people curious about how long I'd been writing the book, whether I'd ever met or encountered Jesse Smollett. The answer is I saw him once at a restaurant. So that was something totally unexpected. But I can't say I uh, can't say I'm angry about it. Certainly, I'm angry about the hoax, not the you know, publicity. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, that's that's funny. It must be absolutely helping your book sales, that's for sure. You know, because um, you know, as as we go through this whole thing. His story gets absolutely more bizarre by the day. And these are things you talk about in the book. As a matter of fact, i got to mention that, you know, um, I grew up in New York, and I was living there at the time of the Tuana brawley um, hoax. And, you know, I was following the news and everything else, and I had the displeasure of meeting the right Reverend Al Sharpton, which is a story in itself uh, a few times. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you were aware that I was a police officer in New York, and there was one time I was doing this anti-drug rally with the Muslim community out of uh, Brooklyn, New York, and they sent us over there to uh, guard the rally, and they set up these bleachers for the speakers to come up on the bleachers and talk to the crowd, this anti-drug thing, oh, hoorah, everything else, and it was going beautifully. And the right Reverend Al sh- shows up with his entourage. And I don't know if you were young enough or old enough, I should say, to remember the right Reverend Al when he was about 250 pounds heavier than he is now.
4: Yeah.
3: And he was wearing those velvet jogging suits with the gold medallions and the rings. Yep, yep. Well, he, so he shows up like this. He climbs to the top of the bleachers with his entourage. And there's no one on the bottom. And obviously didn't anchor the bleachers properly. And here he is up on the top, and the bleachers start to go backwards. And we're standing there behind, and there's nothing we could do to stop these bleachers from going down. There's no way. It would have crushed one of us. It just it impossible. And as the bleachers okay. go down, here's the right roaring Al, with his arms flapping like a big purple bird in the air, trying I don't know if he was trying to take off or what, and he hits the ground and literally bounces. He wasn't hurt. You know, thankfully he wasn't hurt. But to see him bounce, to this day, I can see that purple. That was one of my first <laughs> contacts with the right River. Now,
11: that's genuinely funny. Yeah, yeah I wish had I had some a padding camera, at but that at that, that then, point in you know, time. <laughs>
3: Oh, that's for sure. But they didn't have at that point video cameras, and the phone cameras were not, you know, the popular age. I wish someone had one for that that instant. That would have made America's greatest bloopers for sure.
4: Uh-huh.
3: So, you know, I, I remember, I remember the hoaxes that were going on, and a lot of them he was in the midst of, you know, along with the uh, Reverend Jesse uh, Jackson. You know, uh, if you remember, Jesse Jackson's sons put out a book on how to get rich on nonprofit charities just before he was running for president if that's not a hoax i don't know what is do you remember that at all
11: um actually i mean i'll i'll look that up today on amazon because it sounds like in a dark way a hilariously funny read uh no i didn't remember that but yeah the the trend of fake hate crimes making up between a quarter and half of all hate crimes has been going on for quite a while um I have a chapter on Tawana Brawley in the book, uh, and a couple other cases around that time, like Sabrina Collins, Azalea Cooley. And the thing that stands out about them is how ridiculous so many of them are. I mean, Tawana Brawley's claim was that she'd been kidnapped for, I think, four days. And she'd been taken into this stand of deep woods that must be up in, say, Dutchess County or something like that near New York. And she'd been sexually abused by a group of men that included a uniformed New York City police officer. Uh, it included the district attorney, uh, Mr. Pagones. So it was just this incredibly wild story. But it was, as it still is today, it was considered taboo to point this out. And a lot of kind of the civil rights gadflies jumped on board. So, yeah, that was that was the first time watching TV at like eight, nine Then I became aware of uh, Reverend Al, and you're right. Yeah, then he had the uh, James Brown perm, the velour jumpsuits with the (laughs) Adidas pro runners on. I mean, yeah, it was was a different look for Al Sharpton. He's certainly mainstreamed a lot over the years. But there's not really much humor to that. I mean, Al Sharpton and those two lawyers, uh, C. Vernon Mason and Alton Maddox, were still taught about as a bad example in law schools, including mine. Uh, Ran with this entire case, this case for about a year until they finally got to the grand jury. And the grand jury, of course, said that there was no evidence that Tawana Brawley had been sexually violated at all. And just a bunch of other crazy stuff that what she claimed were male human hairs on her body were actually the inner liner of her running shoes that had been torn out. Um There was feces on her body, but that came from a neighbor's Rottweiler. She would apparently smeared it on herself. So the whole story took this crazy turn. And last comment here, but you saw something you still see today with these hate hoaxes, which is that even after it happened, it was exposed. People kept pretending it had happened. So um, a black feminist writer, I forget her name at the moment, but gave a long speech about Tawana Brawley where she said, you know, whatever happened to that precious girl – Whoever did this to her, even if she did it to herself, we owe her ultimate total solidarity. This is what racism makes people do. So this was kind of the OG, if you will, of the whole set of these cases. It was the one that put this idea of a lot of these are total fakes on the map. And New York had a bunch of these at the time, as I recall, actually. There was the black kid who claimed that Albanian kids he had kind of a street beef with had painted him white with shoe polish. I mean, there were a, a number of these fake attacks, and they all started with that kind of slogan Tawana told the truth.
3: Yeah, it, it, it's really funny because there is a map uh, that one of these hate crime hoaxes sites has. And I was looking at the map, and I found it was extremely interesting the areas where most of these hate crimes occur, uh, these alleged, you know, these hate crime hoaxes occurred. And a lot of them are around the Great Lakes area, uh, Chicago, Michigan, and a huge yep. number of them in the Northeast Corridor from Virginia up through Maine. And I would, I, I would have thought there would have been more out in California, Oregon, Seattle, or something like that, a lot in the Texas area and that uh, panhandle area too. It's strange how it clusters.
11: Yeah, well, I think that what you find, there are actually a lot of patterns. On uh, Myself and my uh, research associate, who's actually my fiance, Jane Lingle, uh, another person, the uh, kind of center-right journalist, Andy neo, we're actually putting together a list, what we want to have as a master list of all of the hate crime hoaxes. So for my book, I looked at cases between 2012 and 2017 primarily, and I put together a set of what was 409 of them. It grew to 516 of them. But that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you're talking about a five-year period, and as we said, this goes back to, you know, 1985. So we'd like to put together an actual Google map that people can update on the site, although we do worry about activists hacking that, Um, a full list of them in a printable document, and so on. And I think you'd get probably not ten thousands, but thousands. And there are are trends within that data. I mean, for example, African-Americans are slightly more likely to fake hate crimes than whites, but Muslim-Americans seem to be about 15 or 20 times as likely to fake hate crimes as anybody else, which is something I never would have expected. When you talk about the population centers, I mean, or when you talk about the Great Lakes and the Northeast Coast, I think that there are just more people there. Uh, LA is no slouch in the fake hate department, but there's no other single concentration of population in California, even San Fran, that's really on par with downtown Chicago or Boston, you know, DC, New York. So I think to some extent you just have these incidents where you've got a lot of people. I, I would bet that another variable would be the number of college students, because a whole bunch of them, something like half, take place on college campuses.
3: Yeah, I I'm, I'm just want to make a comment. I noticed the call is in the studio. If you're there listening, thank you. I appreciate it. If you want to ask a question or participate in the conversation, please press one. Otherwise, I assume that you're just listening. I'm sorry to interrupt Dr. Uh, Riley. Uh, but uh, how many of these are actually done for money or for attention?
11: Well, I think there are a couple of motivators. I mean, first of all, you're a police officer. Uh, I have a legal background. I graduated from U of I Law in 2005, and my interest was white-collar criminal prosecution, um, locking up these Enron sort of guys. So I don't think either of us has necessarily an incredible amount of sympathy for kind of common crime. It's mostly done for sort of tawdry personal reasons. Um, Money is the big one. Sex, I guess we're talking about. Assault, perhaps prostitution. Local notoriety. Uh, So we certainly see this in hate crime hoax cases. I mean, a lot of them are uh, pretty straight down the board insurance fraud cases where someone's, uh, you know, store will burn to the ground. And on the front of that, to shorten the insurance investigation, you'll see a phrase written like Arab go home or colored folk not wanted here or something like that. Um, The second level, though, I think of this is a little deeper and more complex, and that is that. In the United States, there is a massive grievance industry. Uh, I've used this exact line a bunch of times. I don't think anyone really disagrees with it. But entire sectors of American life, whether you're talking about affirmative action, uh, minority set-asides. For example, I could buy a radio station for half price. You might be interested to know. Um, The budgets for these massive activist groups like Southern Poverty Law Center, that's currently $532 million. All of this depends on the idea that there's a massive amount of racial conflict, and there really isn't. I mean, as you know from the force, 86% of white murder victims, 94% of black murder victims are killed by someone, same race. They knew that's been true for decades. So when something does happen that makes it look like we're still at war, what you see is all of these activists and sort of hippie types, race baiter types, coming out of nowhere to support this case and to say, well, this is evidence of what happens so often, even though there's fairly little uh, evidence of that. But I think that that there are two levels of motivation for the hoaxer usually money, but why are these incidents publicized? Why are these incidents made famous? Because many people do believe, and many of them believe quite sincerely that the country is still in the middle of an ongoing race and class war. And this is evidence of the enemy that we need to fight that being whites or perhaps racism. However you define that. Dr. Raleigh.
3: It's funny because you, you, you caught me. Uh, hang on just a second, Curtis. You caught me on, on two different things uh, because, uh, Recently, there was a report of a alleged hate crime here in South Carolina. And when I read the story as a cop, I went hysterical. And when I was being wheeled out of the hospital room on Wednesday to leave, to go home, uh, that Jessica Smollett uh-huh. uh, was on the TV. And the young lady that was uh, wheeling me out, after had been African-American. She was looking at that, and she goes, he didn't do a good thing. And she said, yeah, the hate crime oh. hoax, you know, it's really bad for America. And as we're going, and I said, Do you realize there was one here in South Carolina just not too long ago, just about a month or so ago? She goes, No. I said, It happened to be a mayor, mayor of Lamar, South Carolina. She comes home, her husband comes home. And here in South Carolina, when the pollen goes, everything turns green, right? Yep. If you've ever lived in the South or been visiting the South, when everything's in full bloom, no matter what, you can rinse your car in the morning, by night, it's going to be green. She calls the cops saying someone spray painted her car. <laughs> it was polished huh. on her car. Not only that, she took it to make a point that there are victims to this crime. She goes, I know who did it. She actually swore out a complaint. And the local cops were going to dismiss it because, you know, she's an airhead. It's pollen on your car. No one spray painted your car. But she had them swear out a complaint against this individual, which now involves SLED, the State Law Enforcement Division of South Carolina. She took it not just from a local issue to a state issue because she wants to go after this one individual. Now, I don't know who that individual was. The newspaper did not even deign her with you know, naming the poor victim, which I, I congratulate the newspaper for doing. But there are victims to this crime. Now, Jesse Smollett named two – said there was two white guys. He, he thought he knew who these two guys were. There are two victims that could have been arrested, confined, went to trial, and possibly faced jail for something they didn't do. There are victims to these crimes, aren't
11: there? Um, I think in this case, fortunately, there wasn't a victim because the crime was exposed as a hoax. But, yeah, that's a, very, that's a very key point from a legal or a police standpoint, yes. I mean, by the way, I I didn't expect to be uh, discussing it today, but I read about that Pollard story. People send me a lot of fake hate offenses, and that had to be one of the silliest ones I've gotten so far. Um, I mean, as I understand, that was a case <laughs> where, as you we, it, it's this way in Kentucky, too. When the the first buds come out on the trees, you might put a tarp on your car or something. And this was a person who saw her car dusted with pollen, and she thought it had been attacked with gold spray paint by racists. Um, when that was sent to me, I didn't even put it on my list because I didn't think it would be serious enough that anyone could file a police report. And now I will today because you told me this actually went, in fact, to kind of the state barrow of investigation. That's That's absurd. But um, these cases certainly can have victims. You especially see that in the case of, for example, fake sexual assault. But you see this in the case of a number of fake hate crimes, too. Uh, When you describe Jussie Smollett, the Streeterville district is an upper-middle-class district, but there are also a number of kind of working-mans, mostly Irish-American bars in that district. So it is entirely possible that the Chicago police could have taken Jussie Smollett seriously, rounded up two burly Irish guys, and interrogated them, saying things like, well, you better confess. Um, We've already got you. We know who you are. And to avoid what might have looked like five, ten years in jail, the two people might have confessed and gotten a year. So, yeah, there's always a potential victim. Uh, I think in the Jussie Smollett case, my actual impression from, frankly, legal and police sources is that most people suspected this was a hoax uh, from the very beginning. And as I've said, a lot of these stories are almost cinematic, so Tawana Brawley claimed that the uh, you know uniformed cop and the DA attacked her. That's nothing compared to Jussie Smollett's story where he said that, if I have all this correct, he was attacked by two big white guys. He could see they were white somehow, wearing MAGA hats, patriotic ski masks, uh, carrying a noose, carrying a bottle of bleach, because no one would notice if you were toting these things in and out of a club or a bar. Um, they attacked him at 2 a.m. on the coldest day of the year. This is what we call a polar vortex in Chicago. The wind came whipping down from the northern Canadian plains. It was 25 degrees below zero. So these people came out of the snow like they were yetis. Uh, They grabbed Jussie Smollett. They beat him for a couple minutes using all this equipment. They put a noose around his neck. And then he, this little guy who weighs about 165 pounds, was able to fight them both off and escape. And he did all this while still carrying his submarine sandwich from Subway, and he got (laughs) back to his apartment with the noose around his neck and just sat there for 40 minutes until he decided to call the police. And building camera footage does show that second part. I heard that, and I thought this was one of the most ridiculous stories I'd ever heard. Uh, The Leos on the scene, the cops did too. So fortunately, no one there got arrested. But in many, many of these cases, especially the male-female ones, if you're talking about, say, Mattress Girl, uh, the UVA sexual assault allegation, Duke LaCrosse, Tawana Brawley, I mean, yes, there are people that are are taken into custody or that are punished or they're at least threatened with a major lawsuit, and that's a problem.
3: Yes, it is. Now, Curtis, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
5: Yes, I I was going to ask the doctor about the Duke. I was going to ask the professor about the Duke LaCrosse hoax. Was that initially labeled uh, a hate crime or a sexual assault?
11: Well, Duke LaCrosse was kind of on the fence in terms of whether it merited inclusion in a hate crime hoax. So the initial, that, that was another complex case. The woman, Crystal Mangum, was originally found by the police in a Kroger parking lot. And what the officers reported was just that there was a woman that seemed very disoriented. She was stumbling around. It looked like she had taken some combination of alcohol and maybe Xanax, Xanis. So they took her into the hospital, and it it emerged through this long, complicated process of questioning that she said she'd been sexually assaulted. So at first, uh, that was pursued simply as a rape case. But there were elements of race from the beginning. I mean, Crystal Mangum and her dance partner said that um, they've been called, quote-unquote, the N-word as they came to and then later as they left the Duke lacrosse residence. Uh, Crystal Mangum has said several times they wouldn't have attacked me like that if I weren't a black woman. So I thought that was over the line for inclusion in the book. Um, and obviously there was a very racialized element to that case. I mean, if you follow that case... I teach at one of the uh, the great old HBCUs, the 1866s, and there's another one in Durham, uh, North Carolina Central. There's also obviously Duke, uh, everyone's favorite basketball school to hate, but an upper middle class, mostly white school. And the city's population, as I understand, is pretty evenly divided between different groups: African Americans, poor whites, upper middle class whites. So when the case came out, there were these immediate dialogues of race and class about the case, where you had the group of 88 letter, for example, that presented this as privileged white guys that attacked an innocent black woman. To be honest, I don't think there ever would have been a hate crime amplification thrown into that case. But I do think that one of the things that was consistently argued all along is that this attack happened because these were white exploiters that wanted to brutalize a black woman like their ancestors used to. I mean, this all took place in the Upper South. And as it turned out, of course, as with a lot of these cases, it did not happen in the first place.
4: Yeah.
3: It, 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 I, your book is fascinating because you reminded me of a lot of cases that I had forgotten about over the years. But it, a lot of these uh, unusually happen in colleges, and why is Michigan colleges so prevalent?
11: <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm an Illinois man, so I feel tempted to make some jokes there. But just it's it's hard <laughs> to ahead. tell. I mean, I, we're not political no, I, mean, <laughs> I don't I don't have any. Uh, radio-suitable Michigan jokes. They're all things you'd yell at basketball games. But, um, no, I, I think, again, just a large area, a lot of people. A lot of those happened in the Detroit area. I would bet you the biggest California area for hate hoaxes would be L.A. because you have the most people and the most young people. Similarly, the cities you're mentioning have all been in either that great Midwest pipeline that, at least in our minds, rivals Bosniwash, I mean, from Chicago to Detroit to Milwaukee to Columbus, or they've been on the East Coast itself from Washington to Boston to D.C. to Richmond. So I think it's just where you have a lot of people. That's why the states. The college question is an interesting one. And I think a lot of this has to do with the crazy culture that's developing on American university campuses. And although I've done probably two-thirds to one-third conservative media, I myself am not a radical partisan. But I think this is something everyone can kind of agree on. Um, American universities are slightly to the left of Castro. So, I mean, if you look at the university professoriate right now, um, last I checked, I think it was about 90 to 10 uh, liberals to conservatives. It was about 80 to 20 uh, Democrats to Republicans. And you also have the campus, one, it's an isolated, closed community. I mean, most colleges are located in college towns. Southern Illinois is a massive university, 30,000 people. It's in Carbondale, a city of 25,000 people. Even K-State, which has approached, you know, 810K in the past. We're in Frankfurt, a city of 22,000. Other colleges like Michigan, Illinois, essentially are the town they're located in, Dartmouth. So you're in this closed environment where almost everyone leans left and where you have these majors that are devoted to kind of fetishizing victimization. So, I mean, there's a place for well-done African studies, but you also have African-American studies, women's studies, postcolonial studies. Probably half of all colleges now have peace studies. So, in this environment where there's a constant focus on victimization and conflict and the things the great races have done to each other, it's no surprise that some people start expecting to see some of this stuff. And if there isn't any going on because Americans don't actually hate each other most of the time, there are going to be at least some people that are tempted to make some up. I mean, I really do believe that. And I think that. Frankly, that's what you see with all of these college cases. I mean, my book began with things that I just saw or was exposed to as a young academic. So I believe it was in 2014 at the University of Chicago. This would be back when I was uh, teaching in the city colleges of Chicago and doing some work at Aurora University. You had a guy named Derek Coquelin who was involved in the University of Chicago protest scene who claimed that activists from what he called the Underground Electronic Army, I don't know if he just made the name up or if there was a hacker group on campus, had hacked his Facebook and his Twitter and sent these vile messages to him threatening rape. And as I followed that case in the local press, I mean, these kept appearing on Midwest college campuses. I mean, a young woman at Grand Valley State said that people um, took the whiteboard that college kids have outside their rooms and wrote, you know, go home, black B-word, bleep Black History Month, Blacks have never invented anything, all this kind of thing on the board. Uh, At Michigan Tech, and I see your point about Michigan, by the way, but at Michigan Tech you had a student who was accused of having threatened to shoot all the black students on campus. And, again, these cases inevitably turned out to be fakes. Uh, What happened at Michigan Tech was that the student had posted a Twitter message saying, hey, stop the racial fighting. I'm going to shoot every one of my black buddies on campus a smile tomorrow. I'm going to shoot them a smile. And uh, some campus social justice warrior had seen this message, had taken a screenshot of it, had clipped it, had gone into Photoshop or something, and altered this to make the guy look like a potential school shooter. So he was, as I understand, hauled out of his room and arrested. But at any rate, I don't think it's a surprise these occur on college campuses because colleges are very insular environments where people are constantly talking about conflict and racism. You know,
3: it's funny because I went to college... In the 19th century. uh Anyway, probably before you were born. <laughs> anyway, uh, I saw that back in the late 70s, you know, the way it, colleges were starting to turn liberal. But at that time, they still gave you equal voice, they still gave you a chance to have a civil debate. This is something that's disappeared from the campuses. And a point in case is just recently, an independent student newspaper at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Published an op-ed in which the student author Shane no, slammed conservative ideas, saying they are not equal to liberal and left ideas. The piece was titled "It's Okay That Conservatives Don't
11: Feel Welcome." <laughs> this is crazy. I, I do but think this it's is crazy. What you One deal thing with
3: on campus every day.
11: Well, not really, because I teach at a Southern black college, so I mean. Um, the political correctness, most students on campus, because most African-Americans vote for the Democratic Party, probably would vote, if they vote, for moderate or conservative Democrats. So that that is there. But I think that most schools in the South, most HBCUs, most technical schools, there are a whole bunch of colleges that have managed to escape the wave of crazy. Um, I get the feeling that that's hit maybe the top ten universities and then a sector in the lower middle in artsy communities, if I had to break that down. And K-State is below the first group and above the second. So we've missed the pink-haired radicals waving machetes in the campus quad and so on. I I personally think our campus cops would probably do a pretty good job of shooing them off if anyone were to do that. But, yeah, um, I think what's happened in the academy in the sense that people mean the academy, when you're talking about the Ivy League, the Big Ten, the SEC, the 50 or so that have gone crazy before you get to the crazier ones lower down – Um, you've seen the replacement of traditional liberals by radicals. So, I mean, the conservative liberal dispute is really a dispute to some extent about the size and shape of government. Uh, conservatives in general, we'd say as a political scientist want low taxes, a small government and a big army. It's of course more complicated than that. And, you know, God generally, um, liberals want high taxes, a social welfare state and less God and army. So that's a debate you can have. I mean, I have some liberal positions myself. I mean, if you look at uh, the environment, for example, I don't see why not destroying the planet has become a partisan issue. Uh, To the extent that we could use, say, nuclear power to replace some of the things that we're doing here in coal country, I think that would be a good thing, both for the environment and for the people that would be retrained as plant technicians and would triple their income. So that liberalism and conservatism, that's a fight that's as old as wolf and dog. Radicalism's a little different. Uh, I think, and I could be wrong, that contemporary European radicalism really began with uh, Marx and uh, down the road with Marcusa. And this is the idea that society doesn't just need to be debated over, but that Western society is basically wrong. And that certain kinds of belief, like advocacy of conservatism or any kind of white identity, although I'm not very sympathetic to that one myself, a strong Christianity, a bunch of other things, these are fascist beliefs by definition. So uh, Marcuse, the philosopher, without getting too wonky about this, wrote an article called Repressive Tolerance. And the idea was that to be really tolerant, you had to eliminate everyone that didn't agree with you. You had to decide on which positions were okay of feminism, environmentalism, even classical liberalism, and other positions would then be dismissed as fascist or Naziistic. And Marcuse, as I recall, fought the Nazis in the French resistance, so at least there's some sympathy you might have for him. But what you've seen on college campuses is the classical liberalism, which is just, hey, I disagree with you on 10% of things, I want to get a beer, being replaced by this screaming radicalism, where – most of the core institutions of American society are seen as somehow flawed. So the question, if you're talking about academic standards, goes from, you know, black kids do 50 points worse on the SAT. Should we practice affirmative action? To is the SAT itself racist. And I think that transition in college has really happened since the 1980s. I'm not a fan of it myself. Dr. Well,
3: actually,
5: it goes back to the 70s. 70s. Go ahead, Curtis. With more and more children um, going to, attending interracial um, schools, do you think this racial issue will have the same impact years
11: down the road? That's a fascinating question. Um, I think my answer would be I think activists will find something to be angry about. Uh Race itself is an interesting question in America. Like, I identify as black, but I mean, when I took a 23andMe DNA test, it turns out I'm 50% Caucasian, I'm 40% African American, and I'm 10% uh, Diné Indian. And that's pretty typical of Americans. I mean, a European friend once jokingly told me, you know, in Europe, generally, most white people don't have dark black hair, and most black people don't look like you do. And so in America, we've been fighting and with each other and then marrying one another from time to time for a long time. I mean, when you look at marriage rates, which then most people are still getting married, being blunt, are people that have at least some college, um, 15% of whites are marrying out. They're marrying Asians, African-Americans, whatever. Uh, for blacks, it's 27%. For Asians, it's something like
4: 60%.
11: So in the future, will we really have a very large number of dark-skinned black people that are still angry about slavery? Maybe not. But I think the thing with activism is that there's always the next cause. So, I mean, to me, the civil rights movement, to some extent, has already moved dramatically away from black people. Um, All of these ideas, if you support affirmative action at all, it would make sense to support it for maybe blacks and Indians. But there's no logical reason to me, and I don't think this is a racist position, that well-off foreigners that move to the United States should benefit from affirmative action programs simply because they're not white. But in fact, of course, if you come to the USA from Peru, you would be listed as a Hispanic. If you come from Thailand, you would be listed as a South Asian, which, unlike um, a Japanese or Chinese individual, is a group that's protected by most affirmative action program standards. So if you're a foreign nobleman and you come to the USA, you receive some advantages that, say, a Kentucky coal miner's son wouldn't, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But, I mean, so the idea of civil rights has already moved from whites and blacks fought for 100 years with blacks getting the worst of it, how do we compensate for that, to let's achieve diversity by bringing in as many people as possible from different societies, to here's my new identity that I myself have created, So you're now seeing the transgender movement, the fat rights movement, at least on the campus. This stuff is all taken deadly seriously. Uh, The third generation gay rights and feminist movement, this is all part of the conversation. So maybe in 50 years, the race that's seen as oppressed by both blacks and whites will be the Hispanic descendants of illegal immigrants or something like that. But I think that you will still see... Go ahead, go finish, please. Oh, yeah, no, I was going to say, I think you'll still see left and right managing to fight over silly things. I I said that glibly, but it is accurate. I mean, so even today, if you look at this idea of cultural appropriation, like almost almost all traditional racism in the USA, in the business class, not in a small bar in a black or quote-unquote redneck community, but is gone or at least minimized. So the traditional definition of racism was I openly hate somebody because they're of a different race. I think they're genetically inferior. Now that describes almost nobody who has a job. So you're seeing redefined, I don't know if that's too close, but you're seeing redefined versions of racism, like white privilege is the advantage that you have, even if you are a non-racist white guy, because you're white, so you're 5% more likely to be offered a job in most situations. Uh, Cultural appropriation is the idea of taking something from another culture because you like it. Like I do Asian martial arts, so that would be cultural appropriation as an upper-middle-class black guy because my group is probably more advantaged than, say, foreigners in the developing world. So you're going to find plenty of things for people to get angry about.
3: Well, I'm going to ask, you know, it's become identity politics. It's gotten so bad that you got a Hispanic guy trying to become Caucasian with Jim Acosta, and then you have a Caucasian guy trying to be Hispanic with...
11: Beto O'Rourke, so
3: you know, they make uh, uh, Pocahontas look like an angel <laughs> you know, it, or or at
11: least an Indian,
3: <laughs> just my observation <laughs> my observation well, <laughs> meanwhile, I want to get back to, <laughs> go ahead
11: oh, uh, just one sentence, I mean, that's kind of what you're looking at now is almost designer race and gender, because all of us by this, so point one, there's not a whole hell of a lot of real oppression if you speak the language, I mean, there's some things I wouldn't understand. But if you're an English-speaking white or black male, it's hard for you to say you're oppressed. That's point one. Point two, most people are mixed in some way. Almost none of the white categories, like Irish and Italian, are still intact. And a huge number of people are mixed black, white, white, Asian, so on. And now you have new ideas like the transgender movement. So I do think to some extent, if you're an activist in America today, you can almost decide your whatever wacky race or gender you make up. And then expect other people to celebrate you as that. So I think we're going to see more and more of that. Like, if you look at Facebook, the obviously famous social media site, we're all on it, um, they allow 52 genders that you can choose. And my girlfriend, who's a conservative woman, she's white and Indian, just had fun with this. Like, I think she's Android right now. But there are literally <laughs> dozens. Um, you know, I'm ge- gender queer. I don't, I don't like the ending of the word, but I mean, that just means you can change back and forth between your different genders, whatever genders are, is distinguished from sexes. Um, if I'm androgender, that means you can't tell whether I'm a man or a woman, unless I tell you. You know, uh, there's gender, <laughs> which is a combination of being bisexual and autistic. Interesting combo on dates. I mean, just there are dozens of them. So I think you're going to start seeing people saying this, like, you know, Oh, a black guy might still complain to a white guy, like, hey, you know, you still got it better than me, you know, almost old buddy by that point. But the Samoan son of an undocumented immigrant could complain to both of them that they had a new kind of type of suffering, and so they needed to be allowed to speak. And you'll see more and more of that. <laughs>
3: I'm having so much fun with you. I'm, I'm sorry we have to let you go in about 10 minutes. But the book, and I'm sure holding up to the camera so people can see it. There's also a graphic up on the uh, on the camera, too. Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And you know, I, I want to go back to Jesse Smollett for a little bit. But, you know, what's coming out about this, which I found absolutely hysterical, is that this woman out of Michelle Obama's office, this aide, um, what's her name, Tina Chen or whatever her name is, she has now been hired by the Southern Poverty Law Center to be someone who <laughs> investigates hate crime. <laughs> she wow. is in the midst of a hate crime, and she has been hired by the, Southern, Law, the teeth and streaks, Southern Poverty Law Center, which, by the way, the last couple of weeks, the FBI has deauthorized as a group authorized to investigate hate crimes because they said they are no longer legitimate. I mean, you've got to be that bad when the FBI authorizes you.
11: Yeah, I think it's interesting to me as a, I mean, not fanatical, but at least just center right observer of the political scene that this finally happened to the SPLC. I mean, I've literally been in betting pools about how long this would take over the years. The SPLC had an interesting hustle in that they, were an activist group that presented themselves falsely as a civil rights group. So I've given to the Southern Poverty Law Center before, before I became really involved in politics, before I went to grad school, because the idea that comes to your mind when you hear the name is who could oppose fighting Southern poverty. You think of, you know, blacks being driven to the polls and poor whites getting electricity for the first time. And you know them chasing the rats out of the corn crib and this kind of thing. What the SPLC actually is, is an organization that brings in massive amounts of money by labeling elements of the American mainstream right as Nazi-esque, in my opinion. And that's not really just in my opinion. I mean, you saw recently just these very, very mainstream groups. I think they overstepped uh, a little bit. But Family Research Council, which is certainly conservative on gay rights issues more so than I am, but very mainstream Christian group. Uh, what is it, Jewish Political Action Committee, J-PAC, and they thought about uh, AI-PAC. Um, the one that they finally went over the line with was Quilliam Foundation with Majid Nawaz, who's a former terrorist but who's currently a speaker, businessman, and who opposes radical Islam now, who says, like many former soldiers or warriors, you know, I was hurt in this cause and I'm going to stop this from occurring. So he was declared a hate monger. He was declared an Islamophobe, and he said, well, I'm still a Muslim. I'm just not fighting your country. Are you people crazy? So he sued the SPLC for $3 million and won. And I think that was the beginning of the end, when people saw that the actual hate list was things like Quilliam Foundation, Family Research Council, probably one person in 20 listening is a member of one of those two. So at a certain point, you can't get away with this anymore. And this was followed by the collapse of uh, Morris Dees. I mean, so at at this point, you don't want to get too far into Schadenfreude, but I mean, the head of the SPLC was at least allegedly revealed to be a racist and a sexist, which was... Kind of surprising. I mean, that's yeah, <laughs> kind <think>? of <laughs> so. Yeah, that was that was a complete collapse of that organization. But anyway, I mean, I'm not surprised to see uh Touchen Chen. I don't know how you pronounce the Chen, We'll go with. But I'm not surprised to see her joining them. One thing I will say is that, and this has happened on the right too during the 1980s. Maybe if you look at um the religious right entering mainstream politics. But, I mean, right now, today, not 30 years ago, there's an enormous cohesion between what is seen as the mainstream left and people who, in fact, are fringe fanatics, like uh, Sarah Jong at the New York Times comes to mind. Like, Sarah Jong was someone who participated on the left-wing side of GamerGate which was the huge dispute between SJW gamers and 4chan conservative gamers about game media, where they were threatening to kill each other and hurling racial insults at each other. One of the more disturbing things that's happened on the Internet, and Sarah Jong has all these quotes that were fully part of that. Uh, We should wipe out white people. Um, White people on the Internet are like dogs peeing on trees with their worthless opinions. White people look like they evolved in caves with their pale skin and their big, googly, non-Asian eyes. They're genetically inferior, just like crazy racist stuff. And she's on the New York Times editorial board, and her explanation was, oh, I was kidding.
3: You know, it, it, your book is absolutely fascinating. and it, it, it shows example after example of, you know, these hate crime hoaxes. And, you know, the, the, I have to keep on going back to Jesse Smollett because – uh, if you read the NDAA memo uh, that came out in reference to this, and there were several points in it, and I'm trying to find it because I had it here at my fingertips a few seconds ago, that, you know, there were several things in which his, um, oh, good Lord, I just had a brain fart, uh, his plea deal would become legitimate. And in several instances, it doesn't match. Um, I'm just, bear with me. As, oh, here it goes. I got it. I got it in my fat little hands. Um, one of the things is now the prosecutor said she recused herself, but now we're hearing, oh, no, she really didn't recuse herself. But had she recused herself, the entire office must recuse itself, and then yep. a neighboring jurisdiction or a special prosecutor would then be assigned to the case. Now, you know the law. You know how that works. But now all also, oh, no, yep. she didn't recuse herself. But we do these plea deals all the time, and then a memo goes out, well, someone find me a way we've done one of these plea, plea deals in the past. please. Um, so that I thought was hysterical. Um, they, that the prosecutors should not take advice from um, politically connected friends. Uh oh, yep. do we have a problem here? Where <laughs> Fox reached out to Chen, to Ching, to Chen, and then the last, the third one is that the uh, accused or the one that's found guilty must admit their culpability. He has never yep. done that. By that alone, the plea deal gets completely tossed out the window. You know that. I know that. Bye.
11: Yeah, right? this is this is one of the more remarkable legal cases or legal outcomes that I've ever seen. The only thing I could compare it to is O.J. Simpson, although fortunately here nobody died. But, I mean, in this case, if you're talking about, first of all, why would they make a plea deal, I mean, that's the first question legal buddies, mostly from the prosecutorial side, have asked me. We've gone back and forth about it over the past couple of days. In this case, there was literally a video of the two Nigerian brothers that were involved in the case, the Dario brothers, buying the red hats, the ski masks, and the rope, and possibly the bleach that was used in the attack at a local hardware store. And this isn't me as you know political commentator saying this. You can literally find it by Googling, Video shows brothers linked to Smollett attack buying all items. Um, That's from National CBS. It's still live on YouTube. Uh, The brothers themselves say Smollett paid them to attack him. Uh, They have a signed check from him for the exact cost of the attack. You could probably obtain their DNA from the attack site. Uh, And you're right, this wasn't an acquittal. We're we're not sure what it was. I mean, maybe prosecutorial misconduct. But uh, Smollett still had to pay at least $10,000 in bond. He forfeited his entire bond plus any additional fees the city had. Um, he was, he had done community service in the past and he was given credit for that in this case. That was at least 18 hours. Uh, the exact oh, technique. Oh, used whoa, to
9: tr- whoa, whoa, whoa,
3: whoa, wait, 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 wait we, we got to go back to this community service. <laughs> this comes back to the rainbow coalition and the right word, Jesse Jackson. Now, the community service, you go out there, you pick up garbage on the side of the road or you, you get assigned to a, uh, county office building to empty waste baskets or you are sent to a soup kitchen or to a homeless shelter we actually do service it's not 18 hours answering phones and signing autographs or even less than what he did i as i assume you know you do actual work and then admit your culpability they got jesse jackson and the Rainbow Coalition,
4: you
11: call that community service? <laughs> well, really? I'm, not, I'm not saying he did good community service. All I'm saying is that this indicates he wasn't innocent. That's that's kind of the point here. Nobody's Nobody said that Jussie Smollett was innocent except for Jussie Smollett. So, no, I'm not disagreeing with you that his deal wasn't ridiculous. What I'm saying is that there are a lot of questions about why the prosecution would let a guilty man go. And you've brought out a lot of the issues that went on in this case, that speaking as a lawyer or speaking with a cop, you don't, you don't see this stuff. So first of all, obviously, for, for advice for any of your listeners who might someday find themselves charged with a crime, a misdemeanor scuffle or something, you can't contact the prosecutor and ask them to reduce your sentence. That was the first thing that was remarkable about this. I mean, Kim Fox said very openly that she had taken in texts from Jussie Smollett's family asking her to involve the FBI in the case because they didn't trust the Chicago Police Department. So she openly acknowledged these conversations. Then it took her a couple more days before she acknowledged the conversation with Chen, where the suggestion was apparently that the charges be dropped or reduced or whatnot, and she then agreed to do that. And, yeah, none of the standards applicable to a typical plea bargain were met here. I mean, the D, the defendant didn't admit guilt. The prosecutor was not recused from the cases. They would be in a matter they're personally involved with. And there's also just all this sort of incompetent cover-up stuff that keeps coming up. I mean, so the funniest thing for me was that they sealed Jussie Smollett's entire case record, which is unheard of, except maybe at the request of the victim in a child porn case or something like that. Um, But the judge agreed to seal his entire record. And... The police leaked the record. I mean, they just openly leaked it. They said they'd gotten some kind of FOIA request so they could put it out there for the media. And they had 15 minutes to do that before the judge's order took effect at 925 a.m. or whatever it was. So the police released this, and ABC7 and all these other local news outlets in Chicago now have the file. So if you Google Jesse Smollett police file, you can find that easily. But... The judge and the prosecutor, the next day, because people read this incredible file and started tearing them a new one, they were asked, well, why did you seal this in the first place so the cops had to do this? And they denied having done it. They said sealing it was a mistake. So almost everything here has been described as some kind of a mistake, from the prosecutor saying, well, I didn't really recuse myself. We have semi-recusal here in Cook County, to the file itself disappearing. The whole case is a circus, and the question is why. Why is it so important to protect this guy?
3: Well, I loved I love the part about they inadvertently. No, 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 no. You either do it deliberately or you don't do it at all. But the funniest part is you said, and I'm going to take you back a little bit because you said something about okay. boxing, not trusting the Chicago police. Now, didn't she run on the platform? of bringing closer community relations between the Chicago Police Department and the public, that she would work to actively do that? Wasn't that not her campaign?
11: Well, I think, and this may be a cynical, again, a somewhat conservative perspective, but I mean, I think that generally when people say they want better community relations with the police, what they mean is they want something like a civilian supervisory board following officers around. Um, in recent years, you've actually seen kind of the rise of the anti-prosecutor, which is a really weird phenomenon. So traditionally, if you trained as a prosecutor, you were always told not to be too aggressive. You can't tell the police, like, hey, maybe knock this guy around a little bit and see if he confesses. We really want to bring the Gitano family in. That's That's totally unethical. We're now seeing the reverse, where prosecutors seem to be telling the police to rein it in to not arrest people. I mean, you saw this with uh, Marilyn Mosby, I believe if I have the name correct, in Baltimore, who, in accordance with the mayor, gave these crazy statements during a riot where she said, you know, my favorite was the youth need room to destroy, but we're not going to prosecute mm. anyone that's oh, involved in that these one. riots. Yeah, we're not going to prosecute anyone that's involved in these riots. We're not going to prosecute anyone that's involved in the fighting. It's not the job of the DA's office. And that brings up the question of what is the job of the DA's office if it's no longer, quote-unquote, putting butts in jail, if it's not arresting people for brawling in the street? There's literally nothing else for them to do. I mean, I can make my own stock picks. Like, they have a pretty set job, really. Um, But Kim Fox seems to be kind of another example of this. Like, she has engaged in a fair amount of deferred prosecution. She wasn't lying about that. Where people would be charged with decently serious crimes, and essentially if they met some pretty basic requirements – those cases would be dropped. The Jussie Smollett case, though, I think was a step forward further than anyone really expected.
3: You know, what really got me also is that they turned around and said he's got no prior record. Yes, he does. Several years before, I forget the exact date, he did exactly the same thing, but not on this grand scale, and he didn't get exposed as he is now. He took this several steps further. Now, he he perpetrated a hate crime. And as he proceeds with you know the denial, with the plea deal, he continues to perpetrate that very same hate crime. And it's gotten to the point where tonight, at the best support, he re- is being nominated for the best supporting actor at the 50th NAACP <laughs> Image Awards. And if this is not even further perpetrating the hate crime. So it's one upon another upon another act of continuing this hate crime.
11: Yeah, I mean, I don't. A lot of those strike me more as offensive personal gestures than as hate crimes. I mean, the the hate crime definition just being wonky or legal is, you know, an a felony or misdemeanor motivated by bias. But um, yeah, Jesse Smollett definitely is not. He, he's got some some brass ones. I mean, he's definitely continuing this all <laughs> the way down the wire. So when he gave his speech, I watched it, and I thought what he was going to say is, look, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I was charged with a low felony. I gave him ten or 15000 It's out, but I apologize. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. I'll be coaching youth basketball in the city. I'm sorry. Everyone makes mistakes. And I might or might not have forgiven him, but that's what you expect when you're caught for a minor but serious crime and they drag you down to the courthouse. What Jussie Smollett did was give no ground. I mean, he pretty much said... I'm gonna I'm gonna keep fighting for marginalized people. I am innocent. I've been vindicated, and most people know he's a bs'er. I don't think most people believe this crap, but I will say that he's starting to target his kind of social justice base with it. So, I mean, when you look at the NAACP Image Awards, and again, the NAACP is a group that's done some good in the past, but that's a forum where if you're a black guy who is accusing a corrupt police department or whoever he's accusing now of having attacked you, you're going to get a standing ovation from that audience. I would bet that when he walks in, there are people standing, clapping, cheering. And I don't think they're going to let him win the award, but it wouldn't totally surprise me. So he's kind of returned to his base and he's just doubled down. And I don't think Jesse Smollett's ever going to say he did this.
3: Oh, I, I, I agree. I completely agree. He's, he's put it too far forward that he can't back down. But, you know, I, I had so much, I, I'm, I'm putting before time all the notes I had printed out when I originally read your book, which came up to about 18 pages that I printed out. You know, one thing, I have your hard copy, but I also, you know, I've come to like to use Kindle because then I can highlight, you know, my notes instead of handwriting them and, and just print them out. Uh, I'm glad, though, that, you know, we ended up delaying and coming at this point in time because it's it's so much more for people to understand because this is happening here and now. And as we talk about hate crime hoax, what better example than what has recently happened to explain why exposing hate crime hoax is important and what goes into it? What are the elements of it, and how do we look for it?
11: Yeah, I think that – so this is a great time to talk about the topic. Now, when you say what do you – what clues you in that a case is a hoax, I think this is actually fairly important. Because there are obviously real hate crimes, and they don't necessarily look the way you might think. I mean, from my research, it looks like the group that's most often targeted for hate is Jews, especially socially conservative Orthodox Jews, and they're targeted by both white, quote-unquote, rednecks, by urban black guys. So, I mean, that community has it fairly tough. If an Orthodox Jew says he's attacked, he probably was attacked. Uh, You see a fair number of hate crimes targeting gay Americans and I have no sympathy for that. But quote-unquote gay bashing is something that's gone on for decades. Everyone is aware of it in police departments, for that matter, in high schools. So there are real hate crimes. But there are also certain signposts of a fake hate crime. Um, One of the most obvious is just how unlikely something sounds. I mean, whites and blacks, for example, are certainly not at war with one another right now. Uh, Certainly whites very rarely attack blacks, although all interracial crime is pretty rare. But so, if someone says I was walking down the street as a six foot five black man and I was jumped by five Irish guys that piled out of a van wearing clan hoods, uh, you can suspect that that probably didn't occur. Being very blind, um, another element of that believability is how cinematic something is. So I've been in a fight. I assume as a police officer, you have people normally punch each other a few times, then it goes to the ground. If someone says something absolutely crazy, like. Two people wearing patriotic ski masks came out of an alleyway. It was 2 a.m. The sun was beginning to consider rising. It was the coldest day of the year. They were holding a noose and an axe. I mean, when you get to that point, you can probably say, okay, show me the videotape, because if it doesn't exist, that sounds like a BS story. Um, That's just legal instinct there, but I think most people have similar instincts. Um, Another thing to watch for is the involvement of activists. Real hate crimes tend to be ugly and mundane. Black guy slugs Jew in the face, Jew hits him back once, moving buses pull the two apart, things like that. When you see these cinematic, very visible cases, what you also see is these activist gadflies kind of moving into the scene. So if you see, like, CARE, Council for American Islamic Relations involved, um, if you see, like, a college disciplinary bureaucracy of some kind involved, or hate watch involved. I mean, again, unless you have a videotape, it might be wise to think, okay, this is one of these very prominent, very highfalutin cases, and it's likely that this did not occur. Um, Another thing that I think that's a bit of a clue is the use of internet fundraising platforms like GoFundMe, at least immediately, at least before anyone gets sued. So, I mean, in a lot of the fake cases, What you see is someone saying, you know, I was jumped by four black guys or white guys or whatever. And instead of just going to the hospital, one of the first things that they do is go to social media and they establish this entire network. This is my Facebook link to what I say happened. This is my YouTube video. This is my GoFundMe. And what I find is that people don't react to actual crimes in that way. If you're beaten up by three people, your first stop is probably going to be the police second so might be a group Absolutely. of
3: friends. Dr. Riley, Dr. Riley, it has been such a pleasure having you on. We're definitely going to have you back on. There's so much to talk about. I, I mean, I have not even barely delved into your book, you know, about, you know, different organizations and different individuals that benefit and why aren't we removing those benefits. But there's so much to talk about. But I got my next victim up in the bullpen. I want to thank you for <laughs> joining us. And I'm going to reach out to Casey to get your hat back on. You are so much fun to talk to. Thank you so much.
2: Sounds good. You too. Have a great day. All right. Take
4: care. You You
3: too, Dr. Dr. Wilbur Riley. Check out his book. There's a link up on the show page. Click on Hate Crime Hoax and get his book up on Amazon. We do have our next victim up in the bullpen, Uh, someone that I've I've been a fan of for a long number of years when he was with PJ Net. I was trying to reach out to him back then, uh, but I'm glad to have him on now. Let's Welcome, the originator of Zonation, Alfonso Rachel. Good afternoon, Alfonso. How are you today?
7: I am well, my friend. How are you?
3: Oh, I am just having a glorious day. I had so much fun with Dr. Wilford Riley with his book, Cake Crime Hoax. But you've got yourself up a new website, and I was poking around at it, and I was having a lot of fun. It was called Bronze Serpent Media. Um, But when I originally contacted you, it was because you did the Gosnell movie. And I loved Mm -hmm. you in it, and I know I sent you the message that you actually caught the essence of a real cop and the partnership between two cops, between you and Dean Kane. I just said, all right, he's got it right. You had to have been working with cops to realize how cops react.
7: Wow, thank you. Or either that, I've been pulled over a lot now. (laughs) No, I've (laughs) been No, black guy, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know. A, or, or they smelled the donuts in my car or something like that. Maybe that's what it was. But, uh, no, I mean, when I was contacted to do the gig, you know, I was on tour with, uh, you know, with my band. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was, I'm not really an actor. You know, now Nick would argue with that. Nick Cersei would say, no, you're an actor. If you're performing in my movie, i contacted contact you because you are an actor. So, you know, but uh, he says, man, I just, you know, the, the guy that I have in mind is, is just you. You know, just be you, you know, in, um, you know, in, in police uniform, and, and it'll work. You know, so I didn't really have to do much, you know, character development or anything like that. I was, you know, kind of just being myself. Well, it, it really shows
3: in the naturalness between you and Dean Kane. And my point being is having worked with a partner, there's a certain rapport. There's a certain uh, chemistry. And if that chemistry is not there, you're not going to be partners, you're going to look for someone else to work with. But the chemistry between you and Dean Cain was so wonderful. And the way you played off of each other was great, because that is actually how cops behave. And the emotion uh, when you went into that abortion clinic, and then when you were listening to the testimony, people don't realize we're human, too. You know, when Mm -hmm. you see these things, it affects us. And when yes. we get ourselves involved and invested in a case it it's our
4: life
7: that's right that's right and and you're right you know during the course of the movie you know and i I got to meet um uh, detective woods and you know i've i've uh, you know i've i've gotten to hang out with his colleagues you know and and yeah, these are you know they're red blooded americans you know they like to they like to laugh they like to talk they like to share their stories you know and uh you know and and uh you know share their experiences not so much you know they like like what has happened but they like to be able to share it you know in a in a way where it's like you know you know be ready because it's real out there and you know and you're a real person too and if you're if you, you know if, if you forget that um you that, that's what can really get people hurt in many different ways whether it's on the street whether it's in your home or anything like that you know you got to you got to remember that you're human and uh, you know that you're, that you're doing the right thing and you want to do the right thing
3: You know, uh, you've got a marvelous website out there, and I'm going to push it for people to check it out, which is Bronze Serpent Media, uh, where you talk not just the conservative message, but the Christian message. And and that is what is missing in our society, a religious moral base. And you deal with that. But in a way that is with humor. uh, And it it brings it to everyday life.
7: Yeah, you know, I... um... That's that's what got me got me started doing this, you know, kind of kind of what got me started. I um, you know, politics isn't necessarily something that I'm interested in, and I and I wasn't even a Christian at the time when I started this stuff. I became a conservative before I became a, a Christian, but I knew that this stuff was important, so I I needed to figure out a way to make it interesting to myself. It's like, man, I don't, I don't want to get you know ruled over by politics, you know. Uh, so if I don't make this interesting to myself, I'm not going to learn anything. So I started doing. I just started sharing it. In a way that I thought was interesting, in trying to make it interesting for myself. So, um, you know, and then of course, you know, uh, long story short, you know, the the Christianity set in, and I was like, this is how it squares up, you know. And for conservatism to really work, it has to have that Christian filter, or else there's just no standard. You know, we'll we'll all be trying to make up a standard on our own, and that's when things go really sour. So, you know, Christianity is the foundation; it's the filter, you know, that that I base this on.
3: yeah and it it is a great filter um but tell us about your band what is going on with that
7: well uh god willing uh we'll be releasing the new album uh you know hopefully either by late spring or early summer uh my band 20 pound sledge it is uh it's it's us rocking the gospel really it's it's a it's a dirty sound with a clean message uh it's lots of energy you know it's it's got you know solid heavy beats you know nice melodies you know it's 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 edgy, and uh, you know, twenty pound sledge is, is just uh, you know a ways of getting out there of uh, another angle of you know promoting conservative conservative message, uh, the gospel message, you know, to compete with um you know the secular message that's been so prevalent in music. There's it's like there's not much challenge to it.
3: No, there's not. And when the album comes out, you're going to have to send me a copy and we're going to have to have you come on and we'll play some of that music. I love doing that with musicians, especially someone like you, because it's always different. It's always something new and there's always a message to it. And, uh, I always have so much fun because when you get off of just talking politics and when you get into someone with the music, it, it brings everything together in a way. You can talk and talk and talk and people are going to turn around their eyes crossed and get glazed over. But when you add mm-hmm. another media element to it, it's a better way to get a message
7: across. Amen. So right. Alfonso. Alfonso. Yes. And this is my co-host, oh, can Curtis. I I'll it. Wow, and, and your voice got really deep. <laughs> hey,
5: when you did the, <laughs> I'm one
3: of those trainees.
5: <laughs> <laughs> when you did the movie like, um, Oh <laughs> uh-huh. when you participated in the uh, movie God Snow, mm-hmm. did the storyline impact you? And and in what way did it? You know, as far as babies being murdered like
7: that. Well, you know, I I, I gotta tell you, man. It was for me. It wasn't. Impactful because I was already I was already on board, you know. What I'm saying and I, and I already I already understand. Um and and I, I for, please forgive me for lack of a better way of saying because I don't want to sound like I'm some you know guru or something like that where I, I have this understanding, you know. But what I I understand the evil that it is and I understand where it goes. You know people think that, you know, hey it's it's nothing to it. It's you know it's just a spot of blood. It's a clump of cells. It's only human and and you know they try to make these. Uh, ways to make it seem benign and that there's a justification to it, and you're not doing anybody any harm. I was like, no, 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 no. There's a reason. There's a reason why it's written in our constitution that all men are created equal, not born equal, created equal. Our rights are bestowed upon us upon our creation. The only thing that we have in common that really makes us equal is how we're created. The marriage of the male seed to the female egg. That's what makes us equal, you know. And and when people overlook that. That's when the horrors set in. That's when you can disqualify a person's, you know, humanity, and you can do these despicable things, man. So I saw this a long time ago, and the thing that I was hoping for was that other people would, that seed would be planted in other people. That, you know, it's like, you know, I hope that this, this, this lands on good soil, man, that people can see where this leads to.
3: You know, um, it, it, it's ironic because with Planned Parenthood now, and more black babies in New York City are killed by abortions than are actually born alive. A child mm-hmm. has a better chance living on the streets, homeless in the in the city of New York, than surviving an abortion. And and if anyone is not saying this is a genocide, then uh, uh, what is?
7: That's right. That's right. It's, you know, and um. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter, um, you know, what persuasion, you know, the child is. You know, murder is murder. And uh, it's not any more tragic that the children are black or whether they're white or Mexican or anything like that. But the thing is the black community has been targeted to make this a social norm. You know, it's like the black community is being used to make this a social norm. And, uh, you know, that that is where the the, the disproportionate, you know, uh, uh, comments come in. And, uh, you know, when you have these liberals out there talking about how they're so all about social justice and equality and all that sort of stuff, and it's like, well, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites because look what's going on here. You know, you guys claim to be the champions for for, for minorities and and people of color and stuff like that, but you're totally all about a person's so called right to choose to kill them off and reduce them to like 13% of the population? You guys are sick.
3: Yeah, you know, it's funny because you know I'm active in my local Republican Party, and someone said something over a resolution they want to put before our, our uh, county group. And I I'm, I was reading it over, and they needed my approval for it. And it dealt with the abortion, you know, the right to life. A person who actually uh, for a child not to be aborted after birth. And as I'm reading <clears> it over, and they mentioned the New York state law. And it kind of like glossed over it, and I said, wait a minute. I, I realized at this point the person that wrote the resolution had not read the law nor understood the New York state law the way I did. Because when mm-hmm. we fought for personhood of a child, and personhood being that if a woman is a victim of a crime and she is pregnant, and that child should be lost because of that crime, that would be mm-hmm. an additional charge of murder because it gives yep. value to the life of the preborn child. And they were using That's the right. word unborn. And I says, no, use the word preborn. Because a child mm-hmm. can be viable, can survive outside of the womb, despite the fact they may not have been at full term. And it's been proven. I think there were children as young as eight weeks that survived and are now young adults today. And wow. I said, all right, number one, you got to do that. And number two, they were talking about, you know, um, abortion in the third trimester. And I says, wait a minute, you got to understand also there's two other things elements to this New York state law that you may not understand that it's based upon the health of the mother and health is not defined at all in the law. And it's done deliberately. What could be health? It could be mental health. It could be physical health. It could be familial health. It could be financial health. Health Mm -hmm. is so loosely defined that if a woman says, well, I can't afford this baby it is then an authorization for the abortionist to give this woman an abortion, simply because right. you don't think you can afford this child. Well, you can't yeah. bring it to full term and let someone else raise it as their own? No. Now, this gets the worst part of the law. Uh, it's any medical provider, any licensed medical provider, under New York State Education Law Title Seven. Now, you would think that this would say, all right, New York State uh, Title Seven education law for a health care provider, you're going to uh, narrowly define it as a physician, physician's assistant, nurse, nurse practitioner. You're going to limit it to those in which to provide an abortion. You would think that's logical, Alfonso, wouldn't you? Indeed. Uh-uh. Under Title Seven, and I read it. I made sure I read it through twice to make sure I was reading it correctly. It can include a physical therapist. It can include your pharmacist. It can include your veterinarian. Oh, my goodness. It can include a, a midwife. It can, can you imagine going to your pharmacist and asking for an abortion? Or if that doesn't happen, you go to the local vet here with a spay neutering dog, so why don't you just have then, Eric, just include me with the baby. That is yeah, under New yeah. York state law Now oh, is that
7: Gosnell not frightening be, indeed, you know, And Gosnell must be like Just going eight, eight dung crazy in his cell right now Saying man I could have been doing all this stuff In New York because he was uh, You know like you're saying like a veterinarian To perform the abortions Gosnell was having his uh, unqualified staff perform them And administering it, uh, uh, Drugs that they weren't licensed To be able to do They weren't even a baby, you know, uh, even out of high school you know, and doing the things that uh, they weren't supposed to be doing.
3: It's a crazy, crazy world out there. And unless we open our eyes and start to fight it with the Gosnell movie and other movies that are coming out that are exposing it, uh, I think there's one Mm -hmm. coming out recently called Unwanted. You know, (laughs) we've got to bring up. Go ahead.
7: Oh, I'm sorry. Is it unwanted or un- unplanned? I think uh, unplanned is coming out tonight, I think. Oh, unplanned. Unplanned,
3: I believe. Okay, you're correct. Okay.
7: I was like, ooh, another one? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: but,
7: Let's you know, keep them going. we've
3: got a disposable society. And, and that's our problem. Mm-hmm. Everything is disposable. And when we treat a human being as a unit like they do in Obamacare, you're not a person, you're a unit. When you treat the unborn child as uh, – how do they put it in the, in the law? They don't even call it a child. They don't even give it a human quality to
7: it. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's you know, called you know, fetus. You know, they try to, you know, to disqualify its humanity by calling it a fetus.
3: Absolutely. And I'm so glad you're out there doing the work you do. But tell us why you use Bronze, teeth in backwards, Bronze
7: Serpent as your media website. Oh, thank you. Uh, like I said, uh, I've got to be a, a Christian first. You know, I'm conservative, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a patriotic American, but before any of those things, you know, I'm a Christian first. And uh, bronze serpent media is, uh, refers to uh, John uh, three fourteen 14 through 16, and, of course, that's also harkening back to uh, 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 the Old Testament, too. Uh, but when, when uh, the, the Scripture says that, you know, he'll be held up like a, uh, like the serpent held up in the wilderness, and that's referring to a picture of Christ. And uh, Christ himself is a picture of when the Israelites were getting a little too knuckleheaded for, for God and were getting on his nerves. You know, he sent the fiery serpents out there to uh, strike them with venom. And uh, they were, you know, basically paying for their for their transgressions, and some of them were very ill, some of them were dying. And then, uh, so God says, look, Moses, put a, a bronze serpent up on a pole. All they need to do is look at it, and if they look at it, they'll be healed. And that is speaking, of course, to the faith of looking to Christ, our Savior, uh, for salvation.
3: Um, we do have a caller in on the line. Would you mind if I brought the caller in? Sure. Okay, let me bring in uh, area code 317. You're on the air live with Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick, along with my co-host, Curtis. Uh, we have as our guest Alfonso Rachel. To whom am I speaking?
6: It's Pianki, Pianchi at area code is 314. I was going to ask a question on one of the asking, things you, you pointed question? out. Yeah, on this hoax that was committed in in Chicago, <clears throat> and I, I really am embarrassed over this. But is there, what's the possibility of federal charges being levied on this individual? I understand that there was a possibility of mail fraud where he sent Amtrak to himself. And how about the claiming of a hate crime when it did not happen? Because that could have brought about some ramification. If some white males had been in the area when this manhunt was going down, just the interaction between them and police. Could have caused one of them to become deadly or gravely wounded or hurt. So, uh, what's your opinion on that? And I'll listen.
3: Uh, Alfonso, do you want to tackle that, or would you like me?
7: Uh, I was, who, I, I, it kind of broke up when he was asking. Who was he directing the uh, question towards?
6: Either one of us. We could
7: rock. We could rock
11: paper scissors for it. <laughs> I'll go. But yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll,
6: I'll go ahead and uh, I'll uh, I'll
7: weigh in on it. Uh, you know, right now in this in this uh, day of of public relations and public opinion and uh, and electronic lynching, so to speak, uh, and I think it's funny. Uh, one of the senators came out there and said we have to, you know, make a law against lynching. It's like, and it was some Democrat who said that. It's like, dude, don't you know that Republicans outlawed lynching like earlier on in in, in the twentieth century? I you're kind of late, but at any rate, um, charges uh, come against them. I don't know. There there may be a, a you know, maybe a hefty fine. You know, I think that might already be in play. I'm not sure, uh, but right now, this is one of those things that, you know, it, it, to make it look like, uh, hey, the police just want to play nice, and and uh, and and the president just wants to play nice, and we'll hope this whole thing just blows over, and uh, you know, to not you know spur up any more um, discourse um, between you know the warring factions in this.
5: Well, my understanding yeah. is that there the is, federal is, government is looking into it right now. So it's not over yet To the feds um, have this said.
3: No. But I there hope is, there just, is a I, possibility I, of federal I, charges because of the, there is a possibility of federal charges because he did use the U.S. mail to perpetrate this hoax. He sent a threatening letter to himself. And if that is the mm. case, yes, he can face federal charges on that. Uh, whether or not the Department of Justice goes to see whether or not there is prosecutorial misconduct in the Chicago Prosecution Office, that's another possibility. But that would be going against the Chicago prosecutor, you know, Fox. Whether or not they can do anything else against Jesse uh, Smollett on the federal charges, it's, it's to be seen. Um, but I, the only thing they really can get him with is that mailing that letter to himself, that threatening letter. And that's from my law enforcement uh, background.
6: Well, well I, you I, know, I here's the, the, the thing. Call. Am I still on real quick? Does not the prosecutor yes. assemble yes. the grand jury?
4: Now, a grand jury
3: <laughs> should be independent of the prosecutor. It's supposed to be independent and uh, of either prosecution or defense. They're there to listen to the case and then to decide whether or not it should go forward uh, for an indictment. That is all they are there for. They're not a symbol of either side. It's supposed to be independent. But
6: it's how they is how the prosecutor present the evidence to the grand jury. Because, you know, going back to the Ferguson with the Mike Brown case and Robert McCullough, who was a St. Louis County prosecutor, that was the argument amongst activists that Robert McCullough presented the, the information as if, you know, critical things that probably were persuaded them one way or the other was not presented. So in her case... If the grand jury came back with 16 counts of true bill, then she had been doing something one way or the other. I mean, it's very confusing what's going on with this. Well, but anyway, I don't want to take up much time with you.
3: Saying, no, well, I want to thank you for the call. Uh, I'll explain this to the audience because there's an old saying that we have that, you know, a prosecutor with the right evidence going before a grand jury can indict a turnip. And on I'm sure you would appreciate that. But the good part about our justice system is, is once that indictment goes forward, now the defense can come forward with their side of the argument, go to a court of law before a judge or, a grant or to a, a jury, present all the evidence, the prosecutor, here's my indictment, the defense, this is my answer to that indictment, and then in a full court of law, battle it out. But that's, that's how our legal system is set up. And it's the goodness of it, is it not, Alfonso? I'll take it. <laughs> no, I, I know that you're working. You only had a few minutes, but you, I, as usual, yeah. I've taken you well past that. And I'm going to tell people to go check out your website, which is Brown Serp- Serpent Media. And also, to I've been telling people to watch the Gosnell movie. And i got to tell you, my husband and I rented it off of uh, our, 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 our cable service. And then I went and bought the movie, and I, I sent Ann McAleer a text to let her know that I had got the movie. And I went and I put it before our Tea Party group, and I showed the movie. And do you know what? Every last person mm. raved about it. It is such nice. a well-done movie, and I'm so glad you, you you were a part of it.
7: Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing our work. You know, we're we're trying. Well,
3: it, it's a good try, and you've got a good message out there, and God bless you for the hard work you do. What are you up to now out in Hollywood?
4: I'm,
7: I'm working on uh, trying to get this next album finished. Uh, working on two albums, actually. Uh, but, uh, yeah, other than that, you know, I'm hoping to get back to um, working on my Zoloft videos and my Zopium Den videos.
3: Oh. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes up next. You know, I, like I said, I had been a fan of yours when you were with PJ net. And when I started this radio show, God, God bless. I've been doing this now this August 10 years and I've been trying to get you on. And I'm so glad that uh, JP was able to uh, you know, contact you and say, Hey, listen, talk to Annie. Uh, So it's, I have so much fun doing this. I mean, in the past, I've had Newt Gingrich on, and I've got a former co-host sitting in the uh, in the uh, studio here just listening in who will tell you, uh, Michelle Bachman, who cut me off. <laughs> so I've, I've had so much fun and so many great people. And I've actually had Nick Cersei on along with Ma- Ann and, uh, and I always give her her husband's name, Phil McAleer and Ann McAleerney. Uh, I've had uh, uh, Sullivan on with it, talking about the movie. There's so many great people, and I'm sure you had a lot of fun doing this stuff over the years, too.
7: Indeed, I have.
3: Well, thank you very much. I don't want to keep you up because I know, like I said, you sent me the message saying you can only do so many minutes because you were working. <laughs> yes, thank
4: you. Well,
3: uh, i tell telling people, Alfonso, to check out your website, Brown Serpent. Serpent. If I can talk straight, Brown com. God
7: Braun. bless you, sir. Braun. Bronze,
3: bronze. Serpent. Bronze. <laughs> I'll, I'll learn. I'll, maybe I'll say my name correctly later on. <laughs> All right, thank you. Oh, man. All right, God bless. Oh, man, Alfonso, Rachel, check out bronze serpentmedia.com Three times fast, I'll, I'll be able to say it. But I'm going to turn around and uh, pull up. Because I lost Curtis as my co-host, so I'm going to put someone on the spot. Cool Mike, you with us? Yeah, I'm here. (laughs) All right. You were at the uh, Trump rally last night, and you shot me some pictures. And I've got up on the screen right now you in your Trump T-shirt.
1: Yeah, sorry. I I was – uh, just away from the phone for a second. Um yeah, the the rally itself was really amazing. Um having gone to um uh the ra- the several previous rallies in Grand Rapids um on election night or election day I should say he wrapped up the campaign at three fifteen AM Eastern Standard Time in Grand Rapids. Different location. But yesterday was unbelievable, Annie it's an actual arena where it seats about uh, probably twelve twelve thousand. But then the floor itself, where the ho- in the hockey arena, was just completely covered with people. Hour or so before Trump started talking, yet outside on the jumbotron, they had over five thousand people who couldn't get in watching. Wow. And, and add an additional couple thousand of protesters. Um, they're called socialist alternatives. <laughs> but, <I> mean, <laughs> oh, that's it, a new name. Yes. but I, I, And this started, all of this began like there were people camping out overnight. But I would be willing to say oh, right wow. around th- 3 o'clock that all of the um, outside events started taking place. I got in I was in there. um, I worked the event, so I got there probably. um, I arrived around 11 a.m., and I went inside around 12:30. And uh, you periodically get a chance to uh, peek outside, but for for the most part, I can tell you this was the. I, I, I cannot put into words a day later, um, just how he magnifies this crowd there is nobody i mean this is one of the reasons that the media always tries to say like not a lot of people came or whatever nobody can do what he does nobody and from the minute he said thank you um <laughs> the insult game was on having been exonerated <laughs> um he started at a and he went through the alphabet 16 different times and uh it was unbelievable. That's the best way of putting it, Annie. Unbelievable. Wow.
3: Wow. I was watching. I was watching it on TV, and I was. I was. You were texting me the photos and everything that were going on, and I, I've got you in the T-shirt. And I told you, my size is medium. <laughs> Yanni and I just loved it. We were cracking up, and we were watching it on TV. And you know, he had that crowd fired up, and listening today you would have thought that you know he committed you know mass murder or something it is it was absolutely phenomenal and uh yeah. <laughs> i mean i i lost my co-host there for a second so i hope he's back and uh
1: what uh i don't uh, know what if was this is my about but any if i can what was amazing about yesterday was that for how he could have gone he went off script 5 seconds into this event he could have talked another eight hours. He's got so much gas. And, I mean, he just kept going and going, and that crowd was insanity. And he ends it, of course, with, he as he does most of his, you know, we will make America strong again, we'll make America safe great. again, we will yep. make America great again, and the whole crowd chanted. But it was unbelievable how he, he went, he talked about the accomplishments we all know when people run for office, we all kind of—it's it, always a little exaggeration of this or that. But when he talks about the things he has accomplished while being attacked under all of this, it really is remarkable. I mean, it just is—it's well, just I unbelievable. To,
3: I, I don't want to—I don't want to cut you off, Cool Mike, because I—I I am hoping Curtis is back with us. I see. And another caller in, if it, this is Dr. Samuel, uh, if you can, press one. And that way I know it's you, because uh, it's not the same area code that I see on my list for you calling in. So, yes, it is. Okay, great. This area code is different than what I was given. Let's bring aboard. Mike, hang out with us, because uh, Curtis is having a problem staying in with us. I want to welcome to the show Dr. Samuel W. Mitchum, Jr. Good afternoon, Dr. Samuel. How are you doing today? I'm doing
0: great. How about
3: yourself? I, I'm i having a blast today. I mean, having such great guests and so much great fun today. Uh, I don't want the show to end. and I've been doing – we're going for two hours, going to our third hour. Uh, and I had a lot of fun – I'm trying to pull up your picture here uh, – reading your book, which is Desert Fox, and uh, the story of Erwin uh, Rommel. The Storied Military Career of Erwin Rommel. And i got to tell you, I had a, an incident over the last couple of days where I ended up in the hospital. And I had my husband bring the book because I was down to my last couple of chapters in it. And it's lying there on the tray next to my hospital bed. And nurse after nurse and doctor after doctor come in to do their little stick, <laughs> actually sticking me. And uh, oh, yeah. I have a book there, and they're looking at it. And they're going, you're reading about World War II? And they're looking at me like, you know, what type of freak is this reading a, a history book? And I says, actually, I'm reading the story of Field Marshal Rommel. And they're looking at me like, uh, you're reading a story about a Nazi. And then I start to briefly explain about Rommel, because I knew about his history before you wrote the book. I had, I had an idea of what I was getting into, which is why I said, yes, I'll, 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 I'll review the book and interview you. And I said, well, were you aware of, and I would go through XYZ. And to a person, they go, no, I didn't know. No, I didn't know. And then they would look at the book again, and I says, well, yeah, you know, you can buy it through Reginary uh, Press. You know, you can go up to Amazon and get it. And I said, it's a great story. This is a story, and you, you think about World War Two, Germany, the Nazis, bad. But there were some good people that were in bad situations, and Rommel was one of them.
0: Oh, yeah, I think he was, Um Of course, you know, that's unique to Germany. We in America have never been misled by a politician uh, like Germany was misled by Hitler. (laughs) Uh, And um, he, uh, well, he was a hero uh, when you boil it down. Sometimes he was cantankerous, but aren't we all? Uh, Anyway, I I hope your uh, medical
3: problem is solved. Oh, we're we're working on it. But I'm I'm going to put the book up in front of the camera so people can see. I've actually got probably about 300 little sticky notes on there. So I'm not sure where I'm going to begin with talking to you about the book. You know, what I found with, you know, people of Rommel's character, people that go on to do great things, always come from a very quiet, humble beginning. And Rommel was one of those. As a matter of fact, he was later on, it, it affected the way people looked at him, too. Yes,
0: he came from a solid German middle-class background. That's
3: what his father wanted
0: out of life, and that's what he got. Uh, he was a schoolmaster, and he uh, brought up his uh, children in uh, the German manner, which was fairly strict, he was heavy on education. And um,
4: uh, Rommel
0: uh, was uh, lethargic as a child, uh, Uh, and then suddenly woke up and uh, became an athlete and uh, 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 was very practical-minded. He and a buddy of his invented a glider and actually constructed it and actually flew. It didn't fly far, but that was 1906, only three years after the Wright brothers, which I think was pretty remarkable for a teenager.
3: Oh, absolutely. And what I found was funny is because, you know, you, you describe him as a lackluster student. Uh, but then his dad challenged him and said, listen, if you get 100% on your test, then tell us about that story. Because I was cracking up. I'm sure yeah, he was, that was but I was. <laughs> uh,
0: that was, uh, wasn't his father. It was another teacher. But uh, uh, Rommel was an indifferent student at best uh, early on. And the teacher said that, uh, well, if Erwin uh, ever makes a uh, 100% on an exam, we'll have to call a, a holiday. Well, Irwin perked up. He, he he took him seriously. He thought that they would actually get a day off school if he scored 100% on the next spelling bee, and he did. Uh, he applied himself, made 100. But when the uh, promised holiday did not materialize, he went back to his lassitude, uh, but then I think so, eventually he woke up.
3: Uh, as you but, said, yeah, it became a very athletic. What, what's ironic is, is that his pathway to careers was kind of limited, and back then, going to military careers not the same as today. Now you yourself are a Vietnam War vet, and today is Vietnam War Memorial Day. And thank you, sir, for your service. And a shout-out to all those, you know, that are still with us. And a special prayer and thanks to those that have not, you know, are not with us today. So I just want to make sure everyone knows it is Vietnam Memorial Day. And one of the reasons why I'm glad you're with us is because you were there. You were a helicopter pilot. But, you know, going into military back then is not the same as today. Um. No, uh,
0: it wasn't. Uh, the Germans uh, were in a different geopolitical position from America, and they faced strong enemies east and west, and even to the south. Uh, Italy uh, had a much better army in World War One than it had in World War Two, and um uh, it was considered a patriotic duty to join the service, and the, the German lads did. If you didn't, you would probably draft it anyway. And um, Rommel uh, decided it would be a good career. Uh, his father didn't think so and tried to talk him out at it. But uh, talking Rommel out of anything was a, a, a tall task. And... Uh, uh, when his dad saw his son was going to uh, not be moved, um, he supported him. Uh, uh, he paid for a minor hernia operation, which Rommel needed, uh, paid for uniforms, etc. Uh, Rommel was uh, starting out as what you call a filing officer, an, an officer cadet. And uh, as uh, General Nering uh, later said... Uh, they served king and country pretty much at their own expense, uh, very limited pay. You had to provide your own uniforms, etc. Uh, but Rommel excelled and uh, obtained his commission, and uh, really didn't uh, stand out a- hugely above the crowd until World War One. And that's
3: when he. Uh, oh, he. This, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, he, he also had he also had a certain um, way of looking at things, uh, because before he met his wife Lucy, he was involved with another woman, and because of that relationship, there was a child, and yet now he had met Lucy, so he did something that was extremely unusual. You know, normally if you get involved with someone and you're not going to marry, bye, you know, that's it. You're on your own. But he was an unusual man, and so was Lucy.
0: They were. Rommel uh, assumed financial responsibility for the daughter and uh, contributed uh, to her upkeep uh, until until his death. Uh, And they kept up with each other. She would attend family gatherings. She was introduced as a cousin. And um, the uh, scarf that's uh, you saw on the uh, desk cover of the book, she knitted that for him. And that was the only uh, um, liberty he would take with the uniform. He'd wear his daughter's scarf. And um, the the story on the the other woman, uh, Rommel messed up. Uh, he was 18 years old. I'm, I'm sure you've never met an 18-year-old that messed up. But... Um, He was away from home (laughs) for the first time. Uh, He was lonely. Uh, He was in the Army, and, uh, you know, basic training is rough now. It was rougher in Germany in uh, 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 1912. And um, he um, met this woman who was a fruit seller. She sold fruit, and uh, they had an affair. And Rommel was ready to do what he thought was the honorable thing uh, uh, resign his commission and marry her now, uh, you got to remember that time in Wilhelms Germany um, uh, it, you, you had to have um, you you had to have your commanding officers permission to get married it was that controlled it was a very class conscious society and um, this woman was uh, definitely not officer life material. Um, and his father sat uh, Irvin down and uh, told him, Now, well, look, uh, if you resign now, everybody will think you are a coward because it was 1913, the year before World War I started, but everybody uh, in Europe could see it coming. Um, and uh, that was it, as far as Rommel was concerned. He wasn't ever going to let anybody think he was a coward. So he broke off the relationship with a woman and uh, uh, married Lucy, and um,
4: they were. Uh, well, you know what's ironic? Well,
3: yeah, they were, but ironically, you know, when Rommel applied for to the military, he was turned down twice. And just before World War One broke out, he was transferred to the 49th Field Artillery. Ironically, the very officer that turned him down twice was the commanding officer, wasn't he? I, I'm wondering what yes. went through that man's mind when he saw Rommel walk through the door. Uh, well,
0: um, uh, hard to say. Um, German military thought uh, varied tremendously from officer to officer. Um, he uh, he most likely thought that uh, Rommel was suitable for the infantry. Uh, Rommel applied for uh, was a very practical man, and he would have been a great engineer. And he uh, uh, applied for the engineers first, and they turned him down. And the next most technical branch you can get into uh, in those days was the uh, artillery, and uh, he applied for that second and got turned down and uh, you know, Calvary was probably too expensive for him and it was dominated by the, uh, the Royalty and uh, Rommel probably didn't want to go to the cavalry particularly uh, so he picked the least glamorous of all branches, the infantry and uh, yeah, one thing uh, you, know, you should draw from the book is Rommel was incredibly versatile as an officer uh, he served in the infantry and uh, on the Western front and later ended up in the uh, mountain branch fighting. And uh, we don't have that in the U S army, but they did in Germany uh, fighting in uh, the Carpathians and uh, Romania and, uh, and in Italy. Then uh, after the war, he bounced back between the infantry and the mountain branch and the war school, the war academies. He was a great teacher. And, um, uh, when World War uh, II started, um, he had uh, gotten himself an appointment as commander of Hitler's uh, bodyguard battalion. Uh, he had taken his old lecture notes, which were based on his World War I experiences, and uh, wrote a book about it, and it was a bestseller. So uh, Hitler read it, and that's when he decided he wanted to meet Erwin Rommel, and he made him a battalion commander. And uh, Rommel got to uh, see the Panzer branch firsthand in uh, Poland and decided that was the uh, wave of the future. So he uh, walked in Hitler's office after uh, uh, the fall of Poland and said, My Vera, I would like a command. And Hitler took a personal interest in him and said, What would you like? And Rommel said, To command a Panzer division. And he had. Uh, just been promoted to um, General Mayor, one-star general in today's army. And um, he later admitted that was an extremely immodest request on my part because there were literally hundreds of officers better qualified for such a command than I. But Hitler gave him the uh, uh, 7th Panzer. And they had about 10,000 men, uh, a couple of hundred tanks, but they weren't the Tigers and Panthers. The Americans met in Normandy in 1944. They were uh, captured Czech tanks. Uh, They weren't up to speed uh, compared to even the German tanks or certainly not to the French tanks and the British tanks. But with uh, 10,000 men and inferior vehicles, Um, He captured over uh, 97,000 Allied prisoners in the French campaign in six weeks, Uh, destroyed an entire French Army division, destroyed more uh, enemy tanks than he had, and uh, overran the uh, French uh, Atlantic Fleet headquarters, captured his commander and four or five other admirals, uh, uh, captured between 15 and 20 generals, uh,
3: played havoc. You're getting ahead of me here. Oh, That's what I'm going to talk about. You you wrote something very amusing. You wrote something very amusing because as you're describing the equipment they're using in the Panzer Division, they got all these different types of tanks, all different types of equipment. There was no uniform standard. So, you know, parts were not interchangeable. Uh, Some had thinner skins than others. Some could go more of a distance than others. Some had better firing power. it, it, It was such a hodgepodge which I found amazing. And then they went through several different models, you know, in the uh, 15 millimeters, the 30 millimeter models, D and G, the 50 millimeters, the J models. And then you make a note, which I thought was funny. It should perhaps be noted here that it is a German characteristic, not only to have many models of every weapon, and armored vehicle, but also to make them as complicated as possible. That I thought was hysterical. But then when you read through the book, That caused a lot of problems, didn't
0: it? Oh, it did, and uh, there were other complications. Uh, uh, You know, like uh, I said, Rommel in France had uh, Czech tanks. That meant the operators' manuals were in Czech, and most of the Germans couldn't speak it. And uh, then later uh, in Normandy, they had uh, not only German tanks but Czech tanks and French tanks. And uh, I'm afraid it is a German characteristic to do things in a complicated
4: manner
3: uh, uh, unfortunately uh, matter of course. fact my father was German but he was very very straightforward uh, and he was an engineer but he was an electronic engineer and everything I saw him do was as as, as American as possible but with using German ingenuity and, and doggedness uh, so it I can understand that. You know, it is a fantastic book and a lot of people don't understand a lot about Rommel. They they think of him as, like, as I said, as a Nazi. Matter of fact, he never really was one. He joined the party to get some people off his back, but he never really was a true Nazi. Was he? No, he, he, um, he didn't join
0: the party. He did make a close pass to it once.
3: Um, but
0: um, he, um, at one time would sign his letters uh Kyle Hitler, yours, Erwin Rommel. Um, But you've got to, um, oh, history is like a brush fire sometimes. Uh, When you talk about Hitler and the Nazis, uh, you really got to put a date on it. I mean, uh, Adolf Hitler in 1945 was a lot different from uh, Adolf Hitler in 1932 when he was seeking office. Uh, In fact, uh, if Hitler had died in, say, 1937, we would think of him entirely differently than we do today. Um, But um, my opinion is uh, he was purchased on a delicate mental peak, and at some point he fell off. And uh, it was clinically insane by 1944. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Dr. Mitzi. Yes.
5: We know that. um, Go ahead. We know that. Yeah. We know that George S. Patton and Montgomery were big rivals, but um, to Rommel, see, I oh, one Oh, Curtis, of them you're getting ahead of me. As a as yeah, a Curtis, threat. You're getting,
3: <laughs> Curtis, you're getting ahead of me. I'm sorry. You're getting ahead of me, Curtis. <laughs> oh, no, we, 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 we're going to bring them in if, a little bit later. Which one he
5: feared the most. All
0: right. Rommel's. <laughs> you want me to talk
3: about Rommel's attitude toward that? Oh no, no not Congress. not just yet, not just yet. I mean, right. but, okay. Uh, what what I find what I find amazing um, here is we have Hitler giving orders, and and in the beginning of World War Two, oh. he allowed Rommel free reign. and that was when he was in North Africa. Now we we see a lot of problems with what was going on in North Africa. Had Rommel been given the equipment and fuel and supplies he needed, World War II would have turned out completely different, wouldn't have it?
0: It would have, but that would require a complete strategic reset on the part of Hitler and his high command, because uh, if you read Monckton, uh, his um, objective, Hitler's objective, was always Lebensraum, uh, living space in the east. Uh, he looked uh, on uh, North Africa strictly a sideshow, secondary theater of operations. Um, what happened uh, in late 1940, the British uh, was, oh, well, they had about 32,000 men. They attacked 130,000 uh, Italians, and the Italian 10th Army and totally destroyed it. And uh, the uh, uh, road to Tripoli was open for Churchill and the Allies, but they were stopped because... Uh, Hitler invaded Greece, and they sent their main forces there, which was a mistake. But uh, uh, Hitler knew that he had to put a German blocking force in North Africa or Mussolini's African Empire would be finished. And uh, Hitler, I think, quite correctly said uh, uh, the loss of North Africa can be withstood from a military point of view but it would free up a dozen British divisions which could be used most dangerously. So that was what he, Hitler uh, looked upon Rommel's job as being, go in, top the British Army. Uh, Rommel uh, expanded that mission into overrunning uh, Libya and much of Egypt and pushing to within 60 miles of the Nile River. Uh, Hitler was delighted by it, but he was quite surprised. Nobody expected that.
3: Now, and and, and there was – and one thing I found is Ramo ended up being a a teen idol, whatever. Here you've got a German uh, general, and all the women are swooning over him. They're sending him love letters. There's movie reels on him. He was the darling. Uh, he was—he was like a Hollywood movie star.
0: He was, and there are two reasons for that. Uh, you know, we uh, uh, Goebbels is the propaganda minister, and he is rightfully despised today. But one must admit he was very uh, talented at uh, propaganda, and he and he uh, always liked Rommel. And uh, he played him up big uh, to be a militant hero. And uh, this is what every uh, German should aspire to be, every German boy, anyway. And um, like I say, he was very good at it. The second thing was Rommel himself. Uh, He had an almost American sense of public relations. Uh, He wasn't uh, the kind to go back into headquarters and not meet the press. He would actually cultivate it. And, uh, he put one of, uh, global senior propaganda officials was, uh, a captain on Rommel's staff. And, uh, uh, so he, he played it up. Now he didn't, uh, uh, he got mailbag after mailbag fan mails from, uh, German girls. And he got a kick out of that and said, some of them are quite immodest, but, uh, uh, he didn't, uh, take advantage of that situation. But, uh, yeah, he would very frequently send them autograph photos and uh, things of that nature.
3: Well, you know, here's the interesting thing, because, you know, you hear the stories of the German high command and you hear the stories of the generals and the field marshals out there, and they would be sitting, say, 60 miles behind the line. Ramo was a completely different character. He was out there in the trenches. He was out there on the front line with his men, and he had a very rigorous, rigorous schedule. He'd get up early in the morning, very Spartan living. He'd live out in the tent or, you know, up in the front with the guys. He'd eat with them. He'd keep their morale up. And he had a a magical way of keeping morale up like no other field commander out there. Yes,
0: they, uh, the men were amazed by him. Uh, I remember one of them was, uh, talked about it. He, uh, uh he was in an attack and, uh, they were pinned down and you
4: know, wanted to
0: cut off the buttons in the uniform so they could get closer to the ground. Yeah, it was pretty bad.
2: And the uh, next thing you
0: know, Rommel strides up. He doesn't duck. He just stands there and says, What the hell is the matter with you fellows? Just because it gets a little hot over <laughs> here doesn't mean you have to belly flop every time. And he got the attack going again. And so as soon as he left, there were casualties again. And uh, they'd shake their heads and say things like, "No, you know, there wasn't a bullet made that could kill the old man. Well, that's not true. He was wounded five times in World War One and World War II. But uh, um, he believed, and one of his military adages, his axioms, was uh, no admiral ever won a battle from a shore base. And he liked to be right up front so he could determine what was happening. He didn't depend on dispatches. And uh, they created some problems. That method of leadership does. But uh, the British uh, headquarters, as you said, was usually 60 miles behind the front. And by the time they would get a dispatch and act on it, uh, it would be decoded. And then they'd have to put it back, the answer back into a code and send it to the front. Uh, the situation had changed. Uh, Rommel always reacted quicker than they did, which meant despite the fact that he was often outnumbered 3-1 overall at the decisive point of the battle, uh, he very often uh, outnumbered the British in terms of tanks and men, artillery, and uh, his anti-tank guns. Uh, he, he had a thoroughly combined arms approach to battle, and uh, the British would uh, often put their tanks and infantry uh,
4: into and, and
0: different sectors, and the tanks wouldn't have any infantry support, and the infantry wouldn't have any armor.
3: And uh, this accounts for a lot of
0: his victories.
3: Well, you know, and it's funny because, you know, the British were really set in their ways, you know, the British and the Australians. And matter of fact, he made a, a really funny comment that uh, something about the way the Australians, which he always thought was the, the toughest fighters, and two, the New Zealanders showed up. And he would say, I, I, I'm trying to remember how it went, something like, you send the Australians in to capture, but you send the New Zealands in there to keep it. Something. To, I'm paraphrasing. But he had a certain respect for the people he fought against. He did. He did. Um, he um, he even respected
0: the Italians. He, uh,
2: they, they had a
0: bad reputation. And uh, once said, well, certainly they're no good at war. But... Um, Uh, we can't measure a people by how good they are at war. If we did, what kind of world would this be? Um, And, um, you know, he was right. The Italians were, in World War II, were not good at it. Uh, They didn't have faith in Mussolini, and the uh, fascist regime was incompetent, and uh, uh, the armor they had... uh, uh, Rommel once said, it makes your hair stand on end uh, when you think of what Mussolini sends his men into battle with. Um, as a matter of fact, there was a joke in the Africa Corps uh, which went this way, who are the bravest soldiers in the world? And the answer was the Italians. And their question was then, why the Italians? And the answer was uh, because they go into battle with the equipment that they have. Um, they, they many of them uh, were marching infantry. which uh, meant they could travel about 2.7 miles per hour, and uh, their their tanks were uh, of the lowest quality. Uh, certainly, no match for even the uh, uh, light British tanks or the American Stuart, which was a light tank. Um, but Rommel respected the individual Italian soldier. Now the uh, the Royalist officer corps and the fascist leadership was uh, another matter altogether.
3: Well, it, it's funny because, you know, there were several attempts to assassinate Rommel. Uh, and at one point, you know, a bunch of British commanders went into a, a, a villa where they thought he was, and they they kind of missed it. Two British commanders lost their lives. But along the way, Hitler had issued an order that any British captured commando was to be summarily executed whether or not they're in uniform or not but Rommel stepped in and suddenly those orders just disappeared
0: yes they did he uh, he wouldn't, uh, wouldn't always obey an order he didn't like uh, He, he, he uh, and sometimes when his own orders were disobeyed he would uh, forgive the person that did it if it worked out okay um, but um, he uh, was once ordered to uh, exterminate some Jews uh, in North Africa. They had a Free Jewish Brigade and the Free French Brigade there, a, a Jewish battalion, I mean, and Rommel captured the Jewish battalion. And uh, uh, the order came from Berlin to uh, terminate them with extreme prejudice and Nobody ever saw the order except Rommel and Siegfried Westpals, his uh, chief of operations. They went behind Rommel's command vehicle and burned it. It was found later after the war uh, in the German archives. But uh, he he had certain standards for fighting a war. Uh, It it fell short of chivalry, but... uh, uh, and it, it had elements of it. Uh, you know, he didn't uh, mistreat prisoners. Uh, um, one uh, British major uh, came up to him in a battle. Uh, he had been captured. And with considerable courage, he walked up to the Atlantic German General uh, Rommel, and said, uh, you are not feeding us and not providing us with water. If you can't... Uh, Give us water. You have no right to keep us. And Rommel said, uh, you're getting the same water ration I get, uh, a half a cup a day. They were, they were cut off at that time. And he said, but, if, but you're right. If I uh, can't break through and reestablish supply contact by tomorrow, I'll
4: uh,
0: have to surrender the Africa Corps, and I will let you carry the message to your commander. Of course, he did break through, in the African Corps saves, But uh, uh, he treated them all uh, just alike. He, he treated his own men just alike, and that's—I uh, think—that's the key to success. Uh, one of them in the military. And if you play favorites,
3: uh, well, you know there was. You know, well, go ahead. Well, you know what? What I found—what I found interesting—is is that um, only Rommel did this. There was a certain—certain. Certain code of honor that if you killed a tank you allowed the people, the soldiers to get out of the tank escape and go back to the unit. So you go behind the tank, follow the tracks back to your unit and that's it. They didn't go and capture them or anything like that. They just We killed the tank, go. As long as you don't turn around and fire back on us, go. Uh, But at one point there was a point where some of the other units started to turn around and fire. And he says, well you're going to fire on us after we gave you safe passage you're you're out of here. So he had a certain code of honor. How, I'm just wondering how many soldiers were able to finally go home to their families when they could have been killed right there in the field of battle the moment they tried to exit that tank?
0: Um, yeah, I don't know exactly, but it was a considerable number because a lot of tanks were knocked out in the desert. But that was the unwritten rule on both sides. So if the tank was knocked out, so if you threw open your hatch, uh, you... Uh, walked out with your hands up and you would get on the tracks and follow them back to your unit. Of course, uh, if you were on the tracks, you knew there weren't any, you weren't going to step in any landmines. And, um, uh, uh, that was unique in world war two. There was no place else where that uh, custom was followed. And gosh, in the siege of Tobruk, they had, uh, all kinds of, uh, they had truces, uh, for about an hour at night. Uh, it was unofficial, but it was observed by everybody. And um, that was especially important for the Germans because they had uh, fewer, uh, less ammunition, and they were pinned down pretty much all day. And uh, they'd get a little exercise, what? and everybody get to eat.
3: Uh, and they would go back what to I it. What I found interesting is, What I I found also interesting is how closely Hitler worked with Mussolini, because when I'm I'm reading the book where he was trying to get supplies, he was trying to get oil, food, and everything else they needed, more equipment, more men. And he would bounce between Mussolini going to Rome and going to Berlin to speak to the Führer. And if Mussolini said no, he would go over to the Führer. Or if the Führer said no, he would go over to Mussolini. And I didn't realize that it was almost like a joint command between the two.
0: Well, Hitler kept the faith with Mussolini like he did with almost no one else in his whole life, to the ruin of both their countries. But, um, yeah, they um, – Hitler admired Mussolini uh, and would uh, – you know, like when Mussolini was finally overthrown and captured uh, Hitler went uh, ballistic and uh, uh said uh, Mussolini would be freed, he would see to it, he would be restored, and he was the uh, SS commando uh, rescued him in a famous uh, commando attack and uh, he put Mussolini back on his uh, pedestal uh, he didn't uh, Stay long. He he was executed about a year and a half later. But uh, yeah, Hitler uh, Hitler definitely uh, was true to Mussolini.
3: Well, now I want to go to where they opened Hitler opened up the Russian front, and what it cost Ramel, uh and everything. Because when Hitler opened up the Russian front, now this gave time for the British to then mass their supplies in North Africa and to stymie Rommel. And this is where Rommel started losing battle after battle. He would lose one more location and Hitler kept on ordering him. No, you do not surrender. You do not retreat. You keep, but it was impossible with the the lack of supplies and the tanks, as I understood, could only go 65 miles on just so much gas. And they were working at 13% of their supplies
0: Yeah, some months they didn't get that. Uh, A couple of months, they only got 15% of what they needed. Um, Hitler uh, invaded Russia in June of
4: 1941. uh,
0: Rommel uh, thought that was a terrible strategic mistake, and so did many of the other German generals. But uh, Hitler felt he could finish Russia off in six months before winter set in full strength. And of course, he wasn't uh, Rommel meanwhile was fighting uh, he had three divisions by then fighting the entire British army. Uh, he had uh, several Italian divisions, but they weren't of much use, uh, although some were better than others and he uh, uh, he actually um, performed uh some miracles. It was November of nineteen forty two before he was decisively defeated, so he kept it going for over well over a year, and, uh, but he never had the materials that he needed, and I'm not sure uh, it was even possible uh, prior to Germany's involvement in North Africa in 1940. There was a uh, officer named Rudolf von Toma, who uh, later commanded the Africa Corps, but uh, he was one of those. Efficient German general staff officers. He would uh, he would be wounded seventeen times in his storied career, and um, he uh, focused on the logistics. He said uh, to win in North Africa, you will have to you can only supply about twelve to fourteen divisions. This means. Um, you're going to have to withdraw the Italian divisions and send in German divisions. You can't keep the Italians there, you know, because even if they're not very good, they still got to eat and drink and uh, you know have uh, petroleum oil lubricants, all that stuff. That, uh, and and uh, Hitler rejected his recommendations.
4: And,
3: uh, no, and somewhere at this point, Montgomery is now involved. And Montgomery had multiple times in which he could have completely defeated Ronald, captured him, but because he's known as the Desert Fox, he had such a reputation in the Allied forces that the people were just frightened of him. And Montgomery just never made that final sweep forward when he was offered the chance when he was dead in – his equipment was dead in the desert.
0: Yes, at one time Rommel ran completely out of gas because his supply lines had collapsed and uh, the British remained uh, stationary. Uh, Montgomery continued that behavior in uh, Normandy. Uh, At one time uh, they dropped a huge number of bombs on the German lines. They hit a loop off a field unit which collapsed immediately. And um, General Bradley urged Montgomery to attack immediately. He said, rush them and you'll get them. And uh, Montgomery waited six hours. Well, that's another characteristic of the Germans. Uh, they recover quickly. And they uh, organize quickly. Uh, they would form a coffin group, and they called them battle groups. and uh, They were named after the senior officer, and uh, immediately uh, reformed, they uh, showed a great deal of uh, initiative individually. So, um, well, I, I, uh, you, 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 well, you,
3: I, I want to get, I want to get into Normandy. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm looking at the time. I'm looking at the clock. I want to get into Normandy, and then we're going to finish up with Valkyrie uh, to show the type of man he was. Because now he's lost North Africa. Hitler, he's in the bad side of hitler hitler goes all right i want you to do the security on our our, uh, our front here because they're saying we're going to have an invasion i think it's going to be here but rommel said no it's going to be normandy and his job was to set up the defenses and he didn't get half of what he wanted i don't i don't know if dj would have uh, survived had rommel actually been there on the site and had the defenses he wanted
0: Oh, if he had been given what he wanted, it would have been problematic. He wanted, uh, uh, for example, the 12th SS Panzer Division, Hitler Youth. uh, It made up of boys uh, 18 to 21, and in my my opinion, uh, performed better than any uh, German division, arguably any Allied division, in uh, Normandy. You can argue that uh, some of the airborne divisions did better, but... uh, they were very, very good. They suffered 90% casualties and still held their lives. There's not many units in the world that can do that. And Rommel also wanted to bring up the whole Third Flight Corps, uh, which were armed with these 88-millimeter guns, which uh, would make mincemeat out of any uh, Allied tank. Uh, and an entire corps of those in Normandy would have been a disaster for the Allies. In fact, uh, um, Rommel... Uh, uh, pretty much his move almost eliminated Omaha Beach. DA uh, was, of course, on June 6th, but on May the 11th, he inspected uh, uh, Omaha Beach. I don't know if you've ever been there, but uh, you look up at those uh, hills from that beach and you say, why would anyone land here? Well, the reason was uh, it was defended by a battalion, uh ethnic Germans. Uh, they were Poles. They had no particular loyalty to Hitler, and many of them couldn't even speak English. And the American planners, I think quite rightly, thought they could run right over and probably could have. And Rommel, uh, three weeks before D-Day, uh, came to that exact same conclusion. This unit isn't any good. So he pulled it out, and he brought in an entire regiment, uh, about three battalions, accounting artillery, of uh, German boys, uh, they were the uh, 352nd Infantry Division, and uh, all of them had spent or, or virtually all of them had spent two years in the Eastern Front, and they were true believers, and they were tough, and they were they were veteran, and uh, they were going to defend it with everything they had. Well, the French uh, resistance spotted this move, and they uh, informed the uh, Allied High Command, by the usual method, carrier pigeon. And, of course, Ronald knew that they were sending pigeons to aim so he lined the whole coast up with men who, when they had nothing else to do, uh, patrolled the beaches with shotguns, and their duty was to shoot pigeons. And um, the French uh, took this into account, uh, so, they would send each message twice on different days by two different pigeons because the odds were very much against uh, a German shotgunner killing both pigeons. But this time they did. And uh, consequently, uh, our people didn't know that the uh, uh, German infantry division had been moved to Omaha Beach until D-Day had been in uh, progress for several hours.
3: Um, you know, did Well, you know, know, he didn't get notified he didn't get notified for several hours because no one actually believed that the actual invasion had occurred. Now, I'm going to go to Curtis's question which I cut him off. I'm sorry Curtis, but now this is where I wanted to bring in uh Montgomery, Patton, and Eisenhower and what Rommel's what Curtis was asking Rommel's opinion of these three uh allied generals. Uh he
0: respected uh all of them. Uh, he respected Montgomery. When he read Montgomery's file, he realized he was going to fight a set-piece battle and uh, use his material superiority to defeat the Germans. Uh, Rommel for Mark was, this man is dangerous. And that's eventually how he won in North Africa. It wasn't anything brilliant. It was uh, material, kind of like in the American Civil War. Uh, one side had so many more men and guns and equipment and supplies and the other thing. Uh, finally couldn't go on anymore. Uh Eisenhower he never said much about um yeah, he uh, didn't say anything negative about him. Uh Patton um was a subordinate commander. I mean he commanded a corps and Ronald was commanding an army group at the end in Tunisia and uh he, uh, Rommel's admiration for Patton uh, dates back to August of 1944. Now, Rommel was seriously injured uh, on uh, July 17th, so he was in the hospital recovering and later at home when Patton broke out of Normandy and overran France. And uh, Rommel was in awe of that. He said, we're watching history in motion, and there's never been a campaign like this. His uh, admiration for Patton grew every day and uh, up until the day he died. Uh, So, uh, uh, whereas Patton was obsessed with uh, fighting Rommel, Rommel uh, 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 didn't have that same kind of awe toward Patton until uh, the autumn of 1944. And uh, he was profoundly impressed by Patton at that time.
4: Well,
3: Now, at this point, he's starting to become extremely uh, disappointed in the Fuhrer. And at several points, he and the Fuhrer get into shouting matches. You, you don't yell at Hitler, but he had such chutzpah that he he would go on a one-on-one shouting match with Hitler. And now he starts to think about, hey, maybe he's not the best person to be for a country. Uh, Well, Berlin's going to fall. We know it's not about if it'll fall, it's about when it'll fall. And I'd rather see it fall into the Anglo-Saxon hands rather than the German hands. Now he starts to get involved into a conspiracy, which we now know today is called Valkyrie. And there were several attempts on Hitler. And we know the infamous infamous bomb that was put in the shelter, it was put properly but one of the subordinates in there was in his way, so he kicked it aside and saved Hitler's life. But now, now they go further with this, and they wanted Rommel to become the leader of Germany when, Germany when they make their move. But something happens. He has a really horrific car accident, and it throws everything into confusion.
0: Tell well, us about
3: this, and this is where Rommel finally meets his end.
0: Well, that wasn't really an accident. He was uh, strafed by a couple of Allied fighter bombers and uh, flipped the car over, and he was uh, uh, seriously injured, and uh, they thought he was going to die. But uh, Rommel had a tremendous physical constitution. He rallied and lived. Uh, Rommel. First of all, he learned at some point about the Holocaust, mass murder of uh, Slavs and Jews and Gypsies and anybody else Hitler didn't like, and uh, decided that Hitler um, was probably insane. And he typically would act against him because, like you said, he didn't want Germany to fall in the hands of the Soviets. And um, he... uh, He differed from some of the conspirators, and this may be a little naive on Rommel's part, but he didn't want Hitler killed uh, because he was afraid that would create a great Nazi martyr. What he wanted was Hitler to stand trial and um, expose his crimes uh, in a very public way to the German people because he figured then they would turn on him. They would realize what he really was. Um, And... um, uh, therefore the leading conspirators decided to uh, assassinate Hitler and uh, didn't tell Rommel they were going to do that. Um, they figured he'd go along with it once it was done. And also you got to consider the German character. They'd sworn an oath of allegiance to Hitler, and to a, a German, an oath is an almost physical thing. Uh, they were not going to... Many of them, even though Hitler was leading Germany down to roads uh, road to destruction, uh, they had an oath they were going to follow it. And, uh, of course, Hitler's death would release him from the oath. And that was a consideration in the assassination of Hitler. It's usually underplayed. Um, but we saw it when uh, Germany finally fell, and the news came that Hitler committed suicide. Everybody surrendered. Uh, because they were free from their oath to fight Hitler in order to fight to the last bullet but he was dead so the oath was invalidated Um, Rommel uh, uh, they figured would uh, be a great uh, negotiating piece for the Germans because uh, the Allies had such great respect for him and um, they felt that uh, his prestige might allow them to uh, get a negotiated peace where Germany remained uh, intact and not under the Soviet yoke. Uh, I think I was a little wishful thinking there. We had already uh, committed to unconditional surrender. And I can't see Eisenhower and uh, uh, Roosevelt backing off that. Uh, Churchill probably would
3: have. No. No, not at all. Not at all. But, you know, now the plot is exposed. And as I understand, it ended up being 5,000 people were executed because of Valkyrie. And at this point, you know, Rommel is exposed. You know, there's several people that give him up. And he's told, you have a choice. You either commit suicide. You can go home, tell your family goodbye. Your family can keep their home. They can keep your pension. We're not going to touch them. And it was something that the Germans had a way of doing. I forget what the term is called, in which to keep people in line. And Rommel opted for the cyanide. And he goes for a walk with his son one last time. And his son is saying, well, his son is also a German soldier. He's telling him, no, Dad, we'll stand, we'll fight. And his father's going, no, no, I'm going to protect your mom. I'm going to protect your sister. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect the house. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take this way out and then everything's done and over with. And what I found ironic is the very last person that was with him in that car that gave him the cyanide tablet had a very interesting ending. Didn't he also end by suicide?
0: Yes, he did. That was General Bergdorf. He uh, he and uh, 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 Joe Krebs got drunk together after Hitler committed suicide and they killed themselves in the Furo Bunker, and uh, we don't know what happened to their bodies. Um, the, the word you were looking for a moment ago was uh, Scheppenhoft, uh, Collective Family Responsibility. Right. That was the law they applied toward the conspirators 20 July. That was the day they set off the bomb. And um, uh, they basically, well, they, they uh, basically, they likely told Rommel he had his choice, suicide or the people's court. And Rommel wasn't afraid of people's court. He said, uh, I'll stand trial. Of course, he knew that the verdict would be guilty. But then they said, we will take the uh, requisite actions against your family. You know, however, if you uh, commit suicide, um, no action will be taken against them. They keep their home and pension. As long as they keep their mouth shut, they will suffer no harm. And uh, this time, the Nazis uh, actually kept their word. But uh, Ronald's reaction to it was, I'll be dead in 15 minutes. And uh, within a half an hour, he was dead.
3: Yeah, and ironically, uh, he turned around, and Ronald was slumped over. He put him back up on the seat upright and put the hat back on his head as if nothing was wrong. But Uh, Dr. Sam, it has been a pleasure to have you on Um, Your book is Desert Fox The Storied Military Career of Erwin Rommel It's a fascinating book And like I said, when I was there in the hospital And they saw me reading it And I started explaining the story about Rommel People got fascinated You know, This is the untold story of a man that ended up being a hero That tried to do the right thing Um, I thank you for being with us And I look forward to talking with you again Because you've got something like 40 books out there yeah, um,
0: I'm not sure exactly how many, but it's around 40. I don't. I never knew. My mother, if I'm not honest, my mom was a newspaper editor for 47 <laughs> years, and my first degree was in journalism.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, it has been a pleasure having you with us, and uh, you enjoy your weekend, sir, and God bless. Thank you. You have a great day. I'm glad you like my book. Thank you. Wow. Right, Annie, this was I the best show you ever. With...
1: Wow. Curtis, you still with I mean, us? You all your guests me? were great. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean. I was just saying every <laughs> guest was great. This whole show was amazing. Wow. It was. It was. I don't know if Curtis oh is still God. talking to me because
3: I cut him off. Curtis. Yes.
1: Yeah, he's talking. Yeah. I'm sorry. I Curtis? was interrupting.
3: Oh all right. Yeah, I didn't I'm mean sorry. to cut you off Chris, but I had a progression I wanted because I knew where I wanted to bring in Patton and Eisenhower and uh Montgomery. It was a very good question. So you saw I, I brought it up. So I, I apologize for cutting you off. So don't hate me. Oh I, I understand.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well it's
2: good
1: to have Mike all right. back. Well on this is Wow. <laughs> that was amazing. Well I, I want to thank everyone. Is, to... This is stuff we never hear. No one would ever know this stuff in
4: history.
3: <laughs> well, I want to thank everyone that joined us in the chat room. Kel, whose, dad's, uh, whose biological father served in Italy while Ramu was there. Kel, God bless you. Uh, thank you for your comments. Warp, uh, everyone else in there, Fly, uh, Chief, thank you, Bigfoot. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Uh, I'm there lining up the guest for next week, so a little behind schedule. So I'm going to leave us with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Until then, I say good night and God bless. So that you can uh, find out what is in it.
11: What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor.
3: What difference this point does not make? Find out what is in it.
2: Looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, and have come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the radio chick you bet. I'm looking to make sense. <laughs>